0: Hello, my fellow Westorians. It is Wednesday after the final episode and our heads are, well, you've used the term our heads are spinning before, but I think they're, uh, they're spinning really fast, like, like wheels. Yeah, (laughs) that wheel was not broken in the end after (laughs) all. Nope. In fact, it's spinning faster than ever, but it's a different kind of wheel. You know, back in the day, and in the day, I mean 2005, in this particular case, I believe it was, George was discussing in an interview the concept of the five-year gap and how he scrapped it, and he said, if a 12-year-old has to conquer the world, so be it. And, you know, he doesn't, I don't think he's referring to a specific 12 year old in the story, but given the, uh, revelation, uh, at the end of this last episode of who is, uh, not sitting on the Iron Throne, but wearing the crown, uh, well, maybe that's who he was thinking of at the time. <laughs> that and many more other revelations and guesses, uh, parallels to the books will be coming in this episode. We'll be discussing primarily the big plot points and how they might or might not go in the books. And it's going to spawn a lot of discussions well, well after this episode. Along with the head spinning so fast uh, comments that I just made, we just have a lot, you know, to review. I'm, we're Like I said uh, a lot of y'all earlier, I said we're going to be doing a reread. We're going to work on that. So there's just so much to, to reconsider given all these huge plot points we've had dropped on our heads here in the last few weeks. And well... We're here to start that process and see where it leads us later. And with that in mind, well, we have some of our excellent usual folk around to help out with that, to give their excellent thoughts and takes on this amazing uh, amount of new material we have to think about. Starting off with Lady Gwyn. Hey, Lady Gwyn, Welcome back. Is your head spinning really fast too? <laughs>
1: yeah, it sure is. I haven't stopped thinking uh, since Sunday, really.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you've got two beverages. You were—we almost thought you were being like Sean for a minute there, but no. You've got yeah, two. They're not, s- they're not in the same cup. are They're they not
1: in the same cup, but I do. <laughs> I do have beer and tea because I just couldn't decide.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I drink coffee, and I know things, as my shirt says, and I am drinking coffee, <laughs> and hopefully, I know some things. And welcome back, Sir Buckley, to the show. What, what about your head? How fast is it spinning?
2: You can't even see it. It looks like it's still. That's how fast it's spinning.
0: <laughs> well, c- congrats to you, Sir Joe, on your castles book. Please tell everyone. Give a give a few uh, a few takes on your excellent book. It looks really cool. We've only gotten to see the cover and some descriptions so far.
2: Oh yeah, thank you for mentioning it. Yeah, uh, last week. Um, got to finally tweet it out with the lovely cover like you say uh the great castles of Westeros is as it says on the tin a little book. well i say little large book about <laughs> uh, the big castles of all the main regions so your river on your storm's end etc cetera, etc cetera. uh it's been in i keep saying it's two years but it's not it's actually three years i've been writing it so long time coming really nice to show everyone um you guys, obviously, big influences being the history of Westeros, and that's the kind of thing I look at. And yeah, it was really, really fun to be able to share it with show. If everyone's really completely overwhelmed with the reaction, did not expect it. So thank you for everyone for well, that. That was really cool.
0: This fandom really loves when you put when someone puts effort into something, and you kept everybody in the dark. We didn't know. You just teased <laughs> that you had some large ASOF project, and
2: yeah, that was a better title. I, like, I preferred that. One. <laughs>
0: It was large, was was a very meta uh, use there because castles are large. So <laughs> so it was really cool. Yeah, that's what a great surprise. So we'll be sharing more info about the book. When does it come out again? I forget.
2: It'll be soon. It's June or July. Okay, um, great. So, once the dust has settled. Be right on.
0: Well, you'll hear about, about it the minute it drops on History of Westeros. We'll be sharing it on social media. And whenever much the next obliged. episode comes after it comes out, we'll be mentioning it as well. Thank so you very much. you're welcome. Yeah, I can't wait to read it myself. I love the castles. <laughs> um well let's uh let's give a few quick shout outs and a couple announcements and get right to it because like i said we got a lot to talk about thanks to jeff gnarly history of westeros's first sword and thanks to our dragon rider patrons that includes Tylanes the talon king of gagasos rider of talarius a red dragon with scales horns and talons of midnight black Robert IV of House Ardeacor, burned king of Blazewater Bay, rider of Atroxus, a black dragon with bioluminescent spots like smoldering embers and a banded blue tail. And introducing Stephanie Snow, queen of the true north, crowned in Valyrian steel, rider of Commercis, the bear dragon, shining in black with glittering gold horns, eyes and wings with talons of icy blue. No art for Commersus just yet, but coming soon. We'll have a hatchling drawing of that. and excited for that um let's see here then in it it, along the lines of patron of course i've been saying for a while that we're going to raise some of our change some of our system uh, at the beginning of june if you join now you get grandfathered in under the old price schedule so that's a pretty good deal if you're thinking of joining now's the time we offer things like access to our scripts shout outs early access to episodes and perhaps most importantly bonus episodes and also because of all the great support y'all have been sending during the season, and hopefully we can carry that forward after the season to all the sorts of new material, we added a few new patron levels to keep up with uh, all, all the space. We added a white walker level. It's cool to have some sort of evil level in there. And then a Green Seer level. So check that out if you're interested. Also, shout out to our sponsor, Sleep6 mattresses are so comfortable that had Brienne owned one, Jamie would have never left Winterfell. Did you know that you spend a third of your life in bed? Time you started doing it right. Sleep6 offers a 100-night risk-free trial, free expedited delivery, a 10-year warranty, and every bed comes with a guarantee that you'll dream of spring. Enter the code GOT and get $200 off any size mattress. That's GOT at sleepsix.com. Um, we also want to remind you all about the Game of Thrones storyboards. Uh, William Simpson shares the brilliant and painstaking work that is an integral part of assembling each episode of the award-winning series. There are pre-orders available now on Amazon, and it comes out in about less than a week. Uh, Yeah, like six days. It's out on the 28th. The link is on our website, historyofwesteros.com. So check that out. Lots of other uh, links to... Fandom uh, products and stuff along those lines on our website as well. So with regarding regarding my mention of a reread plan, I haven't fully fleshed it out. Uh, Patron Jure Roberts and others have asked about how we're going to do it. And there's a, let me read this question. How will your content move moving forward reflect this? Will you be doing a reread group project thing, videos along the way with update analysis, or just use that knowledge you gain during the reread to enhance upcoming projects? If you guys ever need volunteers for research or anything else, I'm down to help out too. Well, thank you for the offer. Yeah, We definitely, whatever way we do it, we're always going to involve the community in terms of letting people give feedback and taking questions. So I can't answer all these questions yet because we haven't fully decided, but... It's basically yes to almost all of that. (laughs) We're going to do probably not a reread group project thing, but it will be similar to that. It will be scheduled and done in a way that people can read along with us. Um, But it won't necessarily be a group discussion, although we will have live streams where people can comment and uh, add their feedback. We'll definitely have it organized in a way somewhat like we do these show episodes where y'all will have time to send us questions, and then we'll incorporate those questions in the episodes. So the discussions of the chapters will probably be sticking with our live stream format, which, as I said on Monday, we're going to do a Tuesday live stream once a month and a Saturday live stream once a month after the season here, while starting, you know, in, a, in about 10 days. And the right now, uh, patrons are voting on what time the Tuesday stream will be. It looks like it's going to be around 6. That's the vote that's winning. And a 6 p.m. Eastern Standard, that is so stay tuned for more uh details on how we're going to do the reread but it's going to certainly be focused on rereading but we're also going to have it enhance our upcoming content and some of the content will be focused on the new things we learn so it's like i said kind of all of the above but um like joe said about his book we need the dust to set a little bit before we figure out exactly how to approach all this right now we've just been focused on covering the show (laughs) and that alone is just taking up all my time so uh, the only things we thought about, as far as scheduling are just kind of ideas that popped into my head, but had to focus on what's in front of us first. So, with that in mind, let's get right to it. The aftermath is where we start with the episode itself, and well, it's it was uh, a walk through ash, I guess you could say. Um, very uh, a lot of destruction. <laughs> See, Joe, what was your first reaction? To the episode and your take on this opening scene.
2: The well, the episode itself is obviously is always going to be a big deal. We could always kind of see it coming the end of the week, like we always do anyway. But it was a lot heavier. Um, I actually really struggled with the beginning because I was kind of so met so a bit too focused on the meta and too focused on the fact it was the last episode. Um, if you've ever looked at my tweets, you'll see I'm on the more positive side of things, but I was actually really struggling to enjoy that first third because as soon as the the twist happened and Daenerys died, I was all in my own head and thinking, oh, that's happened too soon. What's, what's everyone going to think? What's, is it going to be another twist, blah, blah, blah. Um, And eventually my wife had to tell me off at an ad break and say, stop thinking and start watching it because uh, this is the last chance you get to watch it. And once I did that, uh, calm down a bit and really really enjoy it because you know it was a big thing to be to realize as soon as it started that you're never going to see those opening credits again and uh you know start off that way so you've got to really enjoy it between
0: yeah that's for sure it's uh the weight you're right there's a lot of weight on it all (laughs) what about you lady gwen what did you think uh, of that of the opening stuff there and the episode in general
1: Um, well, he, you know, I was, I felt a similar weight, um, I was very emotional leading up to it, uh, tweeted about how much, you know, this has meant to my life and what it's done, you know, what Game of Thrones has brought to me. So, you know, I had a lot of expectations, but really once the episode started, I was able to relax, um, enjoy it and start collecting my thoughts. I tried not to overanalyze it in the moment because I do watch it a couple of times before we get to this point. So I just was able to really enjoy it and, well, you know, take in the twists.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right on. Now, right away, we're presented with a conundrum that is very much a, a central theme of Game of Thrones and A Song of Ice and Fire, which is how you treat people. Uh, defeated enemies in particular in this case. And it's a, it's an interesting conversation because you have surprising people on uh, characters on different sides of the argument. Lady Gwyn, one of the most famous quotes that referring to this issue is one that you pulled here.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, see the Lannister soldiers on their knees and probably a lot of us immediately thought of uh, Tywin saying to Joffrey, when your enemies defy you, you must serve them steel and fire, when they go to their knees, however, you must help them back to their feet. Elsewise, no man will ever bend the knee to you. So, wise words from Lord Tywin Lannister there. Uh, this is an interesting, very interesting comparison.
0: Yeah. when I, w- During our Blood Raven series, we did, of course, three episodes of Blood Raven. I, this quote we, we used because. Uh, it, Blood Bloodraven was a hardliner. And of course, it's very interesting to consider that he is mentoring Bran, who is not a hardliner, <laughs> based <laughs> on his personality as a young boy. So it's funny to think that Tywin is not willing to go that far, but Bloodraven is agreeing with Joffrey and people like that. So it's an interesting uh, you know, ethical consideration how you deal with captured enemies. And it's uh, dealt with in the very first chapter of Game of Thrones in a different sense. It's not a captured enemy that they're executing, of course, Garrod, but it is an execution. And Garrod, you know, it's just just start, we start off the series with uh, you know uh, a, a, a kind of kind of a conundrum. It's not presented as a conundrum, but we it's it's fear and love and mercy all at once. And I want to say I have a lot more to say about that first chapter a little later when we talk about Bran. But suffice it to say, there are some very interesting themes right away in Bran's first chapter that deals with the things we saw in this last episode. And another thing that's that's we're all looking more for, all of us uh, creators who are on the trail of the things we learned in this last episode and and elsewhere in the season, is evidence for what's going on with Daenerys. We all want to see what groundwork is there, what quotes support. Daenerys' turn or argue against it or argue for the circumstances to be dramatically different or at least argue for it to be something that doesn't take one episode to happen. Uh, As positive as I tend to be about the show and as I just look for things to talk about based on what the show gives us in terms of the books... It's just, there's no way around the fact that that was rushed. (laughs) So we just have to do what, you know, take it as it is and figure out what we think we can see from the books. But I noticed a couple of things. Obviously, we haven't had time for lots of research, but we did, we do have time for some research. And it's interesting to see that there are a lot of quotes that talk about how bloody it is to take the throne, no matter who you are, no matter how just it is. Even and Selmy said... When Aegon the dragon stepped ashore in Westeros, the kings of Vale and Rock and Reach did not rush to hand him their crowns. If you mean to sit this Iron Throne, or his Iron Throne, you must win it as he did, with steel and dragon fire, and that will mean blood on your hands before the thing is done. Now, Barrison probably didn't mean children, but he also, Barrison himself, did nothing when Ares was king, doing all the things that he did. So, you know, it's not necessarily, Barrison's a good guy, but he's not necessarily, uh, on top of this issue himself. Uh, So it's really, you know, it's a good example of how gray everything is and how difficult the moral conundrums George puts in front of us are. Uh, It's hard to be sure that someone is right uh, or wrong a lot of the times. And even when they are definitely wrong, we we don't always know how to react to it. Uh, Joe, what do you think – about the uh, about some of this last stuff here about the uh, the issue of mercy and and justice and fear.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think I should put it a bit later on in the doc that Daenerys could have really done with researching um, Aegon the Conqueror a bit more. She could have done with her copy of Fire and Blood. She have really got the Viserys <laughs> mm-hmm. version, where he, I'm sure he would have just focused on field of fire and you know burning Harrenhal and stuff. Mm. And she probably didn't get as much of what he did to um you know, unite people and get them on side and deal with the faith, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and that he did use mercy as a tool as well. So maybe if she'd had a bit more of that about her, she would have realized that, you know, just going with the absolute is probably not the best idea now.
0: Yeah. What did you all think of Tyrion finding Jamie and Cersei? As in, do we think he'll maybe get to confront it this way in the books? I mean, I think it's pretty likely he'll outlive them. So facing their death, one way or another, seems fairly likely in the books. Do you guys feel differently, Lady Gwen? Do you do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Well, I think um, it, I'm sure it'll be different in the books. Um, he, you know, like we said, uh, I think we talked about last week that he feels so, or maybe it was a couple of weeks ago. At any rate, he feels so differently about Cersei that it's hard to imagine. It playing out just like this, but there's, I guess there's a possible world where, you know, things evolve and he, he comes back around um, to his family. So uh, it was, it was definitely an emotional thing to watch in terms of this episode and these Mm. actors and these characters.
0: Um, Yeah. And Joe, you said that you noticed that there was a bit of a... Par- not a parallel but um, it's emotional resonance to this happening in the basement because in the books tyrion actually spends a lot of time down there
2: yes yeah, right so he's you know that's how he escaped in the first place he used to go down the shea on the um the mosaic part um and he found the dragon skulls down there when he was younger and now it's where his uh, siblings have ultimately died and it's where he not sent them to die, but they were down there because of his plan. So it's, uh, yeah, it's an important place to. Tyrion. It's very emotional to see him finding them, even though he is obviously so far against Cersei in the books. And it'd be quite a journey for him to feel bad for her death, yeah. know, closer to Jamie. but <laughs> he, he might get there.
0: That's a good point. And it's also interesting to consider um, that he, you know, some of the fallout, from the fallout, huh, pun intended. Now that the <laughs> the logistical fallout, the, the political fallout, is in the inheritances and a lot of the stuff that just isn't dealt with on the show because they never went there in the first place, so they wouldn't follow up on something they never dealt with in the first place. But Joe, you you were wondering, is Tyrion Lord of Castle Rock now? I suppose he has to be. Who uh, I'm not sure who else it could be. But I guess they didn't really deal with that, like a lot of other things. We didn't even know who some of those people were at the Great Council, did we? <laughs> just a bunch of random lords and ladies there, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess it was just lords. Among the many things that are coming out as parallels is one that has been somewhat noticed before, but that has really come full circle. And one that is a very good piece of evidence for Daenerys uh, not going, f- uh, being so... Directly edited for the throne, and maybe that she passes on going for the throne in order to go fight the north, or not fight the north, but fight the uh, fight winter, which would mirror a lot of what happens with Stannis. And that's really interesting because that's exactly what Stannis did, right? He tried to take the iron throne, failed, Mm -hmm. and then went north to fight the you know, he did the old uh, what did he say? I show he tried to save the realm to win the throne instead of winning the throne to save the realm, and that could be. What happens with Daenerys, in a sense, I don't know that she'll go for King's Landing and fail and then change, you know, and then go north. I don't think that part necessarily will happen, although I suppose it could. Although it could be, you know, go for King's Landing, accidentally blow it up <laughs> and then and then have to go north. Uh, that which would be a lot. Well, that would be a lot more devastating, I suppose. But it's it, with that in mind, I started looking for parallels with how people were treating Stannis or how people were thinking about. Joffrey's reign. And it's interesting to think that people could look at Joffrey like Daenerys, not because they're actually similar, but because their perception could be similar. If they see Daenerys as this cruel monster who's killed her own brother and done all these, you know, slaughtered all these other people. In other words, the rumors are are inaccurate, but they have a grain of truth to them. You could get lines like this, which happens right after the Battle of the Blackwater. Stannis is the true king, a monster sits the Iron Throne, an abomination born of incest. Well, people may not be saying Stannis is the true king if he's dead by then, but he might not be. Uh, but the uh, a monster sits the Iron Throne, an abomination born of incest is something that you could see people saying about Daenerys. She is born of incest. And... Some people might see her as a monster if she accidentally detonates King's Landing or intentionally burns a lot of people to death or a lot of other things she could do that would be taken the wrong way or be taken the right way and reflect badly on her. So... I just wanted to raise that issue because we don't really have a, you know, we don't have a whole lot of research into Daenerys-Stannis parallels right now, but it's interesting to consider the whole the, the other aspect of Stannis, which is that he felt rejected. He felt like, oh, they, sh- they didn't call for me. You know, he felt like they, he deserved to be king and didn't understand why the realm would keep... You know, why would they would choose Tommen <laughs> over Joffrey, things like that. And I wonder if we see anything like with, with Daenerys being rejected by the people that she saves in a, in, a, in a similar way. Not not that Stannis actually had saved anyone by that point. But you can see the same sort of story beats coming up here and there now. So I've been rambling for a minute. Let me let uh, Joe, why don't you weigh in on this and then Lady Gwyn as well.
2: I think you hit a nail on the head there. It's a lot about propaganda and narrative. Um, in the show, they would have already been hearing this lie and the other lie from Cersei. Obviously, as Daenerys comes nearer, and we'll probably get a, a version of that in the books as well. Uh, the information will come across a lot slower, but there's more room for more to come we can already see the kind of legends and stories coming from via the boats and stuff from slaver's bay yeah and there's a lot you can definitely twist against daenerys you know you can you can say that oh didn't she kill her brother isn't she a kinslayer didn't she um crucify all the the poor poor slave masters (laughs) masters. yeah (laughs) you can really turn it Uh, if you want to so definitely if she comes and does some burning of her own um you can quite quickly turn Daenerys into a a villain propaganda wise
0: and you pointed out that Daenerys really could have used some lessons from a maester or reading about Aegon the first but it's worse than that isn't it because of who she did learn from instead it's not just that she had no education it's that she had well
1: she had Viserys. Yes. I <laughs> yeah. mean, having Viserys as the filter through which you learn about your history. I mean, even Aegon the First, you know, could have, if she had learned about him, uh, she could have learned that lesson, that Tywin lesson about when your enemies go to your knees. I mean, that that was a valuable thing that she could have incorporated into her philosophy. Maybe had she studied those books Dora gave her as a wedding (laughs) gift, she might have found a more more nuanced point of view. But uh, yeah, no, it's more, it's fire and blood and the glory of House Targaryen. And the fact that, uh, you know, Viserys was convinced and convinced her that the people of Westeros were crying out for their true king. That's just part of that sense of destiny that, is on her shoulders and has been a part of her since she was just a little girl.
0: Yeah, well said. Now, circling back to Tyrion here again, we have... He goes straight from seeing his dead siblings to confronting Danny over the destruction of King's Landing. So he's already kind of in a, well, bad mood, <laughs> I would be putting it mildly, mm-hmm. but that didn't help his... Uh, that probably didn't help him compose himself for that confrontation. But it, it definitely had some callbacks, didn't it, Lady Gwyn?
1: Yeah, it did. I mean, and this was really the first of many shades of Ned Stark in this episode. Yeah. And, uh, he was present here. Yes. Let's put it that no. way, in, in a very big way. Um, but specifically here, you got Tyrion Hand resigning after quarreling with the monarch that they're serving uh Ned resigned after quarreling with Robert over the killing of children ironically <laughs> Danny and her son very who Robert had <laughs> sent <laughs> people to <laughs> assassinate but here Tyrion you know in a very similar fashion just kind of throws his you know hand to the king pin down or hand to the queen pin away and tries to storm off it's Oof. not yeah it's it was very powerful very similar and the outcome was um ultimately similar although ned had a couple more beats in the middle of that but
0: yeah uh, yeah and joe you had some thoughts too with the way john had to he had to push his way through the Dithraki. that was interesting the way that 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 was seen was framed
2: Yes yeah, it reminded me straight away of um, as John's pushing his way through the you see him from behind it's the same shot of Ned pus- pushing his way through Lannisters in um, at Castle Darry right back and I guess it's episode two uh, where he has to go and deal with Robert and he's really starting to click that Robert's not who he thought he was and that's obviously what John is going through here Daenerys is not who he thought she was? They've even both scenes have a missing eye turn up, so you really lace it together that way.
0: That's a great catch. The pushing them, yes. I was wondering why that. I, I it sort of in the back of my head. I was like, I wonder why they're framing the scene this way, and I didn't, I never really followed up on it. But you nailed it. That's definitely it. Very good catch. Another topic that's come up that really needs. A lot more uh, research. Some people such as Stephen Atwell and the guys over at Nauticast have already done some work on this, but there's there's more work to be done for sure, which is the idea that Tyrion might be the one that pushes for the burning of the city in the books rather than being the one who wants to try to prevent it ahead of time. And the reason for that is his very dark attitude in A Dance with Dragons and his hatred of the people that rejected him. He he thinks of his trial and how the people, he wished he was the monster they believed he was, all that stuff. Mm. He doesn't really have this progressive attitude towards commoners that he has in the show. Now, that said, he could develop it. It's definitely something that could happen. And it's also maybe fair to say that his attitude, is mo- his hatred is mostly geared towards the lords and ladies, uh, because it's not like a lot of commoners were even attending his trial, probably. However, you know that could be there could be collateral damage. Maybe hmm. it's tough. It's not. It's not entirely clear. We're a lot farther. And well, this is uh, something to think about. What do you think, uh, Joe, about this uh, this concept about maybe Tyrion being more of an instigator rather than uh, sort of a the good guy in a sense?
2: There's definitely, George has laid the uh, foundation for that. He's far, far darker still. I think it's almost easy to forget how bad he is still in dance um, because we're so used to show version now. You could definitely see him having that attitude towards, maybe not even, you know, he just wants to get back at commoners, but if he thinks that's the price he has to pay to get at Cersei, he hates us so much at the moment. Then you, know, you could definitely make a case for him thinking that that's worth it. Definitely, yeah.
0: mm, right on. And Lady mm. Gwen, you noticed something here too. You got a, you pulled something from yeah. one of the T. Wow chapters.
1: Yeah, in the Mercy chapter, which is, uh, it's technically it's not Tyrion, but it's the the bloody hand, the play that's being performed in Bravos, and the character is supposed to represent Tyrion. As being played by a dwarf actor, and the quote is "Let me be the monster and lessen you in fear instead of love." Remembering that off the top of my head, but you know it's definitely indicative of Tyrion's turn towards the dark and really embracing that uh, kind of ruled by fear, which is what his father always represented.
0: Yeah, and. As we pointed out a couple of times, and it's also just very standard, whenever you have a leader who maybe feels that uh, their reign isn't secure or wants to remove any doubt as to who's in charge or to remove any other possible claims, well, that's always that's a thing with John. And even if even with John's refusal to take the throne, even with his, you know, uh, protestations towards Danny that he'd always be her queen, Arya said to John, you'll always be a threat, didn't he, Lady or didn't she, Lady Gwynn?
1: Yeah, she sure did. I mean, this You know, John pointing out that John would always be a threat no matter what, even if he, you know, totally just towed the line with Danny and said, "Okay, it's fine. I'm going to just back you up no matter what. Think about Maester Eamon going to the wall. Think about Damon Blackfyre II, who was was used by blackfire supporters you know to you know in the second blackfire rebellion it's not something that he necessarily chose for himself uh think about hagen blackfire who was ultimately murdered uh because he was a threat uh so this and the theme of john being a threat is 100% central to his arc from the moment he was born uh it's the entire reason that ned has hidden his true identity you know his whole, the whole his whole life so John has to really face the fact that whether he wants to embrace that and accept that or not, he is a threat
0: Mm -hmm. to whoever's sitting on that throne. And that's one thing that distinguishes Ned from John is that Ned himself was never such a threat. But Ned, of course, being the kind of guy he is, would definitely wouldn't do that sort of thing to protect himself, but to protect somebody else, to protect his sister's kid, to protect his own family. Sure. But as we see here, Joe, it's not really that's not really the way to persuade John, is it?
2: No, no, not at all. I think if you've met John, you know, he's not really concerned about himself so much. But then also on the flip side of that, John doesn't realize that because of his uh, lineage and blood, he's more a commodity than a person. Now, only a similar to when Sansa was in King's Landing and she was basically the heir to Winterfell. She just became a name and that's what John would be. And uh, Daenerys said before about they would rip him apart that way. And that is absolutely true. But it's not the way to persuade him it's the playing on him being the shield of shield of men and the the honor of it that's the way to get to john
0: and it's just like we essentially predicted it would go and another call back to ned the tyrion john scene was very much the ned and Varys black cell scene in many ways and in, in even right down to just as John's walking away, just as Varus is walking away, he turns around and says, what about your, you know, what about your daughter? And it's, it's the same daughter being referred to by Tyrion here, except it's not a daughter. It's his sister
2: um,
0: mm-hmm. or sisters, I suppose. But uh, Sansa, of course, is the main issue here because Danny doesn't really see Arya as a threat. Maybe she should have, but, <laughs> <laughs> but she was really more worried about Sansa. I think you should always worry about Arya if you're <laughs> going to be on the other side of her. But that's another story. Before John and Danny have the final moment in the throne room, Danny has some time in there by herself. And Lady Gwyn, that scene of her, the overwhelming shot of her having wings there, you found a parallel to that in the books, didn't you?
1: Yeah. Game of Thrones. Uh, she's having a dream and she's dreaming about her ancestors. And I won't read the entire paraphrase a little bit, but she's going down a hallway dream uh, and she sees all past Targaryens and they're telling her to run. It's interesting because it says her feet melted the stone wherever they touched. I thought that was possible. Something that you know would be looked at a little bit closer but then it says a great knife of pain ripped down her back and she felt her skin tear open and smelled the stench of burning blood and saw the shadow of wings and Daenerys Targaryen flew and then it goes on to talk about her flying um she's in the dream she's flying above the dothraki sea and and heading towards home it says all that lived and breathed fled in terror from the shadow of her wings she could smell home she could see it just beyond that door green fields and great stone houses and arms to keep her warm there. So,
0: Mm.
1: you know, it's sort of like it encapsulates probably what in the books we'll see is the great sort of dichotomy of Danny, someone that wants this peaceful green fields and warm hearth. Um, they never really he,
0: gave that to her show character. She never. They didn't give her this red door, this this vision of home. That they kind of right. took that away from her. Which is yeah. a lot of that story's internal. So it's it's you know I, I don't. It's, yeah. it's disappointing they took that away, but you kind of get part of why. Mm-hmm. But still, I wish they did it. But there's more here, isn't there?
1: Yeah. Well, this <coughs> the more is really.
0: Oh, looks like she froze there. Uh, so we'll we'll uh, move on and come back to her. <laughs> you had uh, you had some eye uh, thoughts on this too, Joe. It was a little kind of overwhelming, wasn't it? They kind of went uh, a little over the top with some of the imagery here, didn't they?
2: Oh, the shots are straight out of the evil person handbook. Yeah, <laughs> you've got the huge straight flag. You've got the rows of uh, still silent soldiers. You've got to walk up a really big staircase if you want to go and talk to her. It looks like um, straight out of like Star Wars. It's the Empire or the First Order or something like that. Um, which is basically what Daenerys is suggesting, actually. That you know, they conquer. She's suggesting imperial rule, where she knows best for everyone, and everyone will listen to her.
0: Yeah, that's. And it also,
2: yeah. it also, it does serve to remind you how powerful she actually is. It does look like a lot more than half of the Unsullied survived <laughs> Winterfell, but there seems to be a lot of them. But it does remind you how many there are. It does remind you the Dothraki are still there. And for me, it actually reminded me, especially in her speech, when she's saying about um, them all giving her the Seven Kingdoms, that not so much with the Unsullied, but the Dothraki, she would eventually have to kind of start giving some dodgy kickbacks to keep them happy. Yeah, That's the kind of thing she'd have to let slide. That's the price she has to pay to keep, you know, that's the kind of, slope she's on now.
0: Yeah, and it's it's true and because and giving them castles and lands is not that's not how they do things. No. So you don't yeah, that what they want is blood not if they good. want. Yeah, they want bad. They want the stuff that you, you don't shouldn't want to give them. Okay, Lady Gwen's connection has is, is back so back. <laughs> go ahead and finish You should uh continue with your take please. It was good stuff. Yeah,
1: uh well, it was I was talking about how the um and that was actually a good lead in. It was a good transition to um talk about the Dothraki because this image of Danny being this terror kind of in the sky above the world, remind me. Ram reminded me of the stallion who mounts the world prophecy, who was supposed to be her son, Rago. Uh, this, this prophecy uh, that the stallion is the Call of Calls who would unite the Dothraki into a single khalasar and ride to the ends of the earth, and all the people of the world will be as herd. which is very much the language that you're hearing from Danny here. And you get this the Dash Kaleen say, as swift as the wind he rides, behind him his Kalisar covers the earth, men without number, with a rock shining in their hands like blades of razor grass, fierce as a storm this prince will be, his enemies will tremble before him, his wives will weep tears of blood and rend their flesh in grief. So the the imagery now is very much like what Danny is, you know, has become people are trembling before her they're weeping tears of blood women and children are you know screaming in grief and um,
0: it's incredible that we looked at that as we sort of looked at that as a good thing originally, because yeah. it was just like, oh, this is just how the prophecy looks. It's actually just, oh, yeah. she's she's going to do these good things. And that's just how it's being written, mm, because right. this is just this is filtered through the lens of Dothraki values, uh, social it, value yeah. and culture stuff. But it actually, no, it's as bad as it sounds.
1: <laughs> it's bad. It's Yokoi who said to me the other night, his, he said, you know, the stallion that mounts the world is really an aggressor. It's it's not you know we we've been kind of looking at it wrong. It's exactly what you just said. We've been looking at it kind of in the
0: that Zora High Uniter. It looked like the Uniter thing, like bringing people together to fight the darkness. Yeah, that's how we like saw the, it. Yeah, yeah,
1: their version of that, which was, I guess, a valid way to look at it. But
0: oops, you know, like <laughs> apparently, maybe not. Like that's yeah. a real hammer to the to a long lasting theory. There, like wow, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. impressive. Let's talk a little more about the Dithraki as we get into our first set of questions from Mistress Wolf, innkeeper at the smoking log in Wintertown. In the books, George R. R. Martin was always keen to show us the clash when two different cultures come together. With Danny bringing the unsullied and the Dithraki to the Westeros, I never felt D&D made us feel that huge social clash. They were living and fighting together in the North for months. Danny's victory scene finally showed how different the Essosi and Westeros societies really are just by how they perceived the battle outcome. Your thoughts? And please tell me George R. Martin isn't just going to put everyone from Essos on a ship and make them magically and conveniently disappear at the end. No, he will definitely not do that. George is all about the logistics and and the setup for the dithraki is definitely not going to allow what happened on the show to happen. I mean, I pulled a couple of quotes here that that are particularly important. Whether or not the general army of the dithraki will do anything, I don't know, but I suspect they will. But think look at this. Every call had his blood riders. At first, Danny had thought of them as a kind of Dothraki king's guard, sworn to protect their lord. But it went further than that. Jiki had taught her that a blood rider was more than a guard. They were the call's brothers, his shadows, his fiercest friends. Blood of my blood, Drogo called them. And so it was. They shared a single life. The ancient traditions of the horse lords demanded that when the call died, his blood riders died with him to ride at his side in the nightlands. If the call died at the hands of some enemy... They lived only long enough to avenge him, and then followed him joyfully into the grave. And we saw that play out, right? We saw that play out with when Drogo died. And well, right now, Ego, Rakaro, and Jogo are alive, and they absolutely bowed to her and named them. You know, were named blood of my blood after they witnessed. First, they refused, you know, and then they, after they witnessed the birth of the dragons, they were like, "Oh, never mind. We uh, we're yours forever." And then. And after them came her handmaids, and then the others, all the Dothraki, men and women and children, and Danny had only to look at their eyes to know that they were hers now, today and tomorrow and forever, hers, as they had never been Drogos. And that's the you know, the last chapter of Game of Thrones. <laughs> and there's just no way that's going to get hand-waved in books, right? <laughs> uh, so how that could go, I don't know, but it probably will be bloody. There will be, you know, people won't want, want revenge, it just... Ah, uh but the Unsullied it's it's a little harder to say. I think the show's portrayal of them might be a little more accurate. They're they're not leaders, they're not rulers and they're very orderly and disciplined and they may you could maybe see them holding John prisoner which might be how he's saved from the Dothraki. Uh that could mm-hmm. maybe work. Joe, I see you have some thoughts on this as well.
2: Yeah, oh sorry I'm still getting free it. Um I think it's just, we've spoke about it before that the kind of many factions thing. Daenerys is going to be bringing a lot of people, like you said. They're not all just going to be happy to sit on the boat. And the Dothraki are the worst of that. They're too wild a weapon to really wield. They're not going to be controlled as they are in the show. And she will probably regret their use at some point because she has seen what they're capable of and will probably see it again. And it's not exactly going to be endearing to whoever she's trying to get to love her. Um, And yeah, I just think it's going to be messy. The Dothraki will fight with anyone. They'll fight with people. They're supposed to be on the same team as Daenerys is now going to have to, in theory, mix them all with the Greyjoys and uh, all the Swords And Sully and everyone else, it's not going to be an easy task at all.
0: True that, true that, well said. Okay, let's move on to more questions. I do, uh, yeah, I hope that gives the Dithraki some uh, justice. They were shamefully unused uh, as characters in the show, but uh, it wasn't exactly unexpected given the uh, conservation of characters and all that. But really, they could have given us one guy. Oh, well anyway, I've complained about that enough. <laughs> All right. So take questions. Um, pun the pun award of the week goes to Lady R R uh, in our Facebook group. Check out our Facebook group if you want some nice long form discussions, and our Flick group for shorter uh, discussions on uh, for, through a different uh, venue. He, she says that given's bra, given Bronze's position on the crown, paying to rebuild brothels, instead of master coin, he should be master of groin. Mm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Good one, good one. Also, uh, Growl Tiger says, so when the people of Westeros refer to Bran, they may say, how many eyes does Lord Bloodraven have? A thousand eyes. And two. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> He's the sequel to Brendan Rivers. Uh, from Tommy Pappas. Maybe a better question for book to show. Indeed, it was. He posted it then. I don't know why I read that part. <laughs> Did anyone get Brendan Rivers vibe for Jon's End? Yes, uh, absolutely. It's definitely a lot of Aemon, but also Brendan Rivers. Aemon took uh, kind of removed himself from the line of succession by taking the black and Bloodraven was sent to the wall for murdering a Targaryen or a Blackfire uh, under safe passage. So there's a bit of both in there because John did commit murder slash assassination but there's also the uh, taking himself out of the line of succession by going to the going to the wall uh, so there's a little of both there um, do y'all have anything to add to that was there any more um, any more to deal with brendan River slash uh, slash Eamon? I think we already covered Amon a bit mm-hmm Okay. All right. I think you nailed it. Cool. All right. From Chris Trombley. Thoughts on John and Brendan Rivers' parallels. Yeah. Killed an unarmed claimant to the throne, sent to the wall by their cousin, and had their own followers at the wall. Wildlings versus Ravensteeth. You know what? I didn't catch the Wildlings and Teeth part. That's really good. And uh, yeah, sent to the wall by their cousin, of course. That's a good fit. Yeah, it's a really strong parallel. Um, it goes beyond just the. You know, they're both uh, bastards um, with Targaryen blood and. Uh, not Stark blood in Brendan Rivers' case, but blood of the old gods with uh, House Blackwood and Stark and John's case. There's definitely a lot of meat on those bones there. and But of course, their personalities are very different. John's more like Bran in a lot of ways. And, you know, Bran and Brendan Rivers, to me, that's something that there's a lot more conversation to be had because, uh, yeah, because they're obviously much more closely linked, but they're farther apart on a lot of attitudes. And, uh, so we'll, we'll be getting into that. Speaking of Lord commander, George, the golden asked, did brand pick himself or did he know he would become King, but wasn't sure how, why did so much tragedy have to unfold? I suppose there's no way to know from the show, but the implications are huge. Do either of y'all have a take on this? It just was brand manipulating his way to the throne or, was it something else lady Gwen, what do you think
1: yeah i had some notes and they uh, i just found them there cuz they're way down about this exact <laughs> thing though but um in uh, boy raven tells him in the cave the past remains the past we can learn from it but we cannot change it and i would expect kind of a similar conception about visions of the future you know you might um see have a vision of the future but i would imagine they would have some sort of you know I don't know, prohibition against interfering or um, I'm not sure, you know, because the, his, the coma dreams and green seeing dreams do definitely indicate that he will be able to see the future or at least a possible future. Yeah. But they, ha- I think the thing will be that they have to be very careful because a possible future, it can be changed by very simple actions. So, you know, brand seems to be more concerned with memory and history, even in the show. Um, so I don't know. On the other hand, green seers did apparently take an active role in trying to avert futures in the past, uh, in the, in the world book. It says That's they, true. they, they supposedly made the trees come to life to battle the faceless men. And they used the hammers, to hammer, the waters versus the andals. This is rooted in visions of the future. So, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, um, it's tr- yeah.
0: It is tricky. I agree, and I, I really like your point about small things because that is what Bran did. He did little things to kind of manipulate the situation. He gave mm-hmm. the dagger to Arya. He told Sam that now is the time to tell John his parentage, and it was very small moves that created big little ripples. nudge, yeah. nudge. <laughs> <laughs> nudge here, nudge there, big effect. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think he did pick himself to answer the question directly. Yes, but and uh, but I don't know why so much tragedy had to unfold. I don't think he. I don't know that he. Could have stopped that. Um, certainly Daenerys's turn wasn't anything that he had to do with, but he may have seen it coming and that may have been why he uh, acted the way he did. But maybe it was just more of a, in order to truly stop the cycle, you need you need someone like me <laughs> on the throne. Um, but uh, it's, yeah, so it could be kind of a, a, a version of altruism in a sense. But also want to point to, refer to your, your comment just now, Lady Gwynne, about how he's more concerned with history And memory, which is true in in the show. And that's, I agree with you that it'll be future and past in the books, but to support the idea of of the past and how he's such a representation of memory, we have that wonderful scene of him going through the crypts. Well, he really goes through the crypts twice, but the first time with Maester Lewin, Mm. when he, Maester Lewin's like... Bran, tell me about all these Stark kings that you're passing by. And he's just listing them off and what they did and and why they were remembered and why they were loved or hated or what have you. And that scene has some different implications now for sure. Uh, So I really like that. It's a good detail. Um, Next question is from Lord Francis of House Redcoat. The apparent significance of John's parentage in the show largely was that it created a political problem for Danny, creating conflict between Danny and various characters. In light of this outcome in the show, and assuming John is resurrected in recognizable form in the books, do you see his parentage as having additional significance in the books, such as prophecy or royal succession? Or do you believe this is a George R. R. Martin twist to demonstrate his parentage had an important but non-obvious impact on the story? Well, for, I think certainly the, the dragon riding aspect is going to matter, and that's a magical thing. But, Beyond that, well, I mean, that's a big one by itself. Beyond that, I'm sure there's, there's probably something, but let me get y'all's thoughts on that. Uh, Joe, what do you think about this?
2: I think we'll see it um, have a lot more personal effect on John. I think it's so laced in, especially in Game of Thrones, um, just how much uh, personal importance it'll be to him discovering he's not actually a bastard and uh, that he can now learn about who his mother was and his father also i just think he will have a lot more uh, significance in his own story and his own arc than just being a problem
0: for daenerys right now what do you think lady Le- Le- again
1: uh, well i have <laughs> a very lengthy answer to this but i'll well, try go to go for it yeah <laughs> <laughs> I'll try to make it as succinct as i can um i think that his parentage in the books is going to be very important um that the prophecy that Rhaegar was dealing with for most of his life uh, is going to turn out to come true in, you know, maybe an unexpected way. It's not that Jon is the uh, is the ultimate heir to the throne, or that he's going to resurrect the Targaryen line. Actually, quite the opposite. He's, I think that it's very possible that Rhaegar saw exactly what Jon's or his son's, because obviously he never saw John. Mm. what his son's destiny might be, and that is, if it plays out the way it does in the show, saving the realm from two very big threats, one of which may have been coming from within their own family, and um, that may have been the tragedy or the melancholy um, of Rhaegar, because he, he may have seen that this, what John's destiny was, was to stop this Um, kind of renaissance of the dragon Lords, because that's not really a good thing as we see in this this sense. So I think, um, you know, I have a lot more nuances and I'm going to, Stop it there because I could probably go on for the rest of this whole episode. But, <laughs> but uh, I'd suffice so it to say, I think it's going to end up being very important, but in a bittersweet way and not in a way that anyone will ever really know the truth of other than John and a few small people around him.
0: So. Just as a, I, I, not to make you say more about this when you're just saying you wanted to leave the rest alone, but <laughs> <No>. <laughs> you, uh, you and a did a panel at ice and fire con called good guy, Rhaegar," And you kind of, the, the purpose of which was to consider the possibility that Rhaegar was doing things for good reasons. You know, mm-hmm. it's hard to see in some cases, how that could have been, but does this, af- I'm sure this, mm-hmm. this general question is reflected here as well, isn't it? And like it imp- oh. impacts what some of the things you might've said in that panel, maybe.
1: Yes, absolutely. And, uh, you know, we'd, we had a, a listener um, who was also at the convention who suggested that Rhaegar may have seen some, you know, if, if you consider that so many of the Targaryens had dragon dreams, and, you yeah. know, Master Raymond talks about that, that, that you really have to consider in the background that that may have been influencing everyone. So if he was having some sort of dreams about outcomes with his own children, he may have known exactly uh, maybe the three heads of the dragon uh, really was more about this kind of a three way battle between three Targaryens um, that we'll see in the books, uh, oh. you know, Danny, Fagon and, and Jon um, kind of fighting it out through Westeros. And, you know, it, it's it's just interesting to consider, you know, kind of, I was like to kind of tilt the tilt your perspective a little bit and look at things sideways.
0: Yeah, that's cool. (laughs) Yeah, I really like that. Yeah, and and Mm. just to add to your bit about dreams, uh, I think it was Joe Magician and maybe Crowfoot's daughter came up with the theory that what a lot of the Targaryens were dreaming was of Daenerys' funeral pyre, uh, of Mm. of Daenerys' pyre that raised the eggs. When they were dreaming of the dragons returning, they weren't. A lot of them saw it as themselves, but it was really her they were dreaming of. In Mm. other words, Ares dreamed that he would emerge from the ashes as a dragon. Well. His daughter did that. (laughs) So, well, (laughs) Not she wasn't the dragon, but the dragons were with her. So it's close enough. So, you know, maybe Arian was dreaming of that when he drank wildfire and and Egg was having the same. So, yeah, you could. These dreams really have a lot of why not apply that thinking to Rhaegar and, and affecting what he was doing. It makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, next question from Tiffany Tomchak what are your thoughts on the members of Brand's small council Sam as grand maester makes some sense if you ignore Gilly and the amount of time it normally takes to forge a maester's chain and Brienne will clearly be an awesome lord slash lady commander of the Kingsguard however Bronn is an odd choice for master of coin did anything really change if we're just putting our friends into these roles regardless of their qualifications his line about brothels makes me wonder if you'll be another little finger thanks you do a great job and all your show and your show means a lot to me well you're welcome and thank you for saying so um yeah i think that was just the law of conservation of characters playing out there they didn't want to l- realistically there would be it wouldn't be brawn <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> i really don't think so um I, i'm not even sure Le- brienne's going to be l- lady commander of the kingsguard that's a nice one but uh i have s- some doubts about that and sam is grand maester yeah that seems a bit of a reach too because of the things you said you, you know she's he's mm-hmm. married he has a kid he's yeah, there Sam is just getting the best of all worlds here. <laughs> he gets to do all, he gets to break all the rules and have all the <laughs> yeah. just do what he wants basically. <laughs> uh do y'all have any thoughts on this? Um yeah,
1: yeah, even in the show that didn't, you know, the Sam didn't really make that much sense to me because uh, because of those things that she mentioned. But uh but as far as uh braun I had wondered if it was uh um perhaps re- I was remembering that Tyrion had signed this, um, this kind of contract with Brown, Ben Plum and the second sons, um, you know, pledging him some huge amount of money. So I wondered if Braun might be standing in, like you said, conservation of characters, maybe someone like Brown, Ben Plum that Tyrion mm. owes a gigantic debt to um, that he has to give. Maybe mm. not high garden, but some that makes gigantic sense. holding yeah. somewhere. Yeah.
0: Braun Brown Braun Ben Bron Plum. Brown. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Hey, it works. Ah, we solved it right there. Yeah. Uh Joe, anything to add?
2: I think it's that like you said they just needed some uh quick endings for people. Let's give Davos a happy position. Let's give Sam yeah. um, a happy position.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh I didn't I hadn't even thought about Brienne becoming uh even King's guard, let alone Uh, lady commander but i do actually i really like it in my head i like to think that um this is her extending her oath to catelyn obviously catelyn didn't know bran was alive um, when she charged brienne so maybe brienne's thinking "Well, i protected Sans, i've protected aya i'll have a turn at protecting her last son now as well
0: right on well said uh, from My Cowboys Family. I know on the show they have John off in the North, but is there still a chance of a John sansa pairing being the end for them, king and queen in the North? Each has a lot of parallels to Aemon slash Jaehaerys and Nares slash and I feel like the show isn't going to push the incest all the way to 12 after having Jamie Cersei. Thoughts on any other major characters that might have different, slightly different end result than the show? Um, yeah, I kind of doubt it, um... There isn't, I don't, I'm not aware of any foreshadowing for it and, and big things like that. There's usually a little bit of foreshadowing for it, but maybe, maybe I just haven't seen it, but um, I guess this, this historical backing as, a, as, a, as evidence is something for sure, but um, I, I feel like John removing himself from the succession, rejoining the Watch, something along those lines, like what we, given the Eamon slash Bloodraven parallels, that seems more likely to me, and that would preclude him marrying Sansa. Do y'all have any uh, different thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, no, yeah, no. There's, I mean, there is a little bit of, you know, a, a, there's some hints about John and Sansa, but mainly them oh, just okay. thinking of each other. I, I mean, it's nothing, nothing really overt. But it, in one sense, it wouldn't surprise me. But on the other hand, it would be out of character for John because yeah. I don't think he's gonna. Um, I, I don't think he would sort of allow himself to go unpunished if that, you know, if that makes sense. Mm. I don't think he's gonna mm. just step into a role of. Something like that,
0: yeah. And, and love is. hasn't worked out for him in general, really. It's, yeah. it's all it's had these really bad endings, like these lovers keep dying, and partly because of him. But <laughs> still, I'm no psychologist, but that he seems like someone that might not get into mm-hmm. a relationship for a while, if if not yeah. ever. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, from Nancy Groth. Someone asked on the show only live stream about Bran having had Endgame all along in the books will this be Bloodraven's Endgame all along. Will Melisandra be revealed to be the daughter of Bloodraven and Shiera Sea Star. Well, Lady Gwyn, I know you guys talked a bit about the last part of that question, the Melisandra Shiera Sea Star part on your yeah. uh, Melisandra episode.
1: Yeah. Um, well, I mean, that was Uh, very early theory of Yoke Boys, and I think it's I still think it stands as a fantastic theory. Uh, Depends to what extent the showrunners were correct when they revealed Melisandre's age, really. I mean, is she hundreds of years old, or is she, you know, a hundred... Plus years old, yeah. Because if that, she's a hundred plus,
0: it could work. But if she's hundred, exactly. then it can't. Yeah, you're right. Right,
1: mm-hmm. right. But uh, you know, then you know, but she she certainly has a lot in common. So even setting that aside, she just has she has many things in common with Blood Raven, the Sorcerer, and Shira Star, who was you know also had these sorceress sort of things related to her. So. Uh, clearly, George made some comments recently about uh, Melisandra placing her in the company of people like Gandalf and Albus Dumbledore, and um, it's clear to, it was clear to me that George considers Melisandre like the great sorceress of the story.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I uh, agree with that. Yeah. Um, to add to that, the or to answer the part about whether well, this be Blood Ravens' endgame all along, I think I don't think he's trying to engineer uh, Bran to take the throne uh, so to speak. I think he is more concerned with defeating the dark coming darkness but I do think there is a lot of potential for Bran to have some conflict with his mentor because as we said Bran chooses love Bran is not a a ruthless character. He's uh, a good boy (laughs) and (laughs) Bloodraven is a hardliner, a ruthless guy and he may have just fed Bran his, his friend and that (laughs) <laughs> that might not go well. It might be like, what the hell? You made me eat Jojen? Are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. I don't know that Bran's going to be, you know, how is he going to react? It's hard to say because he's a little boy that's, you know, his yeah. crippled. And But I don't think he's going to like it. I think he's going to, I mean, we're meant to be creeped out by that cave. It's really, really creepy. And that's part of, wrapped up in the whole high cost of magic and all that stuff. But it's also wrapped up in, in Bran potentially uh, rejecting some of the lessons that uh, Blood Raven's going to teach him, which I think is a lot of potentially uh, interesting stuff there. Uh related question here from Zombie Jesus. Do you think we'll get more info on magic in general in the books? I was a bit disappointed that we had no cathartic resolutions to how blood sacrifices work, the old gods slash werewood network, also white walkers and house the undying magic. Too many rules can make magic stale, but it would be nice if it were grounded in some way to physical reality. Yeah, I kind of agree. I don't think the show... We never really had a lot of hope the show would explain that. We had some that there would be at least an explanation for more about the Night King and his birth and all that. But really, they kept that pretty vague. However, apparently the prequel show is going to get into great detail with that. So there is a lot of reason for optimism and for the books. Yeah, there's going to be a lot more, I think. Mm. Joe, what do you think?
2: yeah absolutely there's so much more still to cover especially if you look more northward um there's all the blood sacrifice still to come all of we've got i think we've barely tapped the surface really with bran um and the show like you say just couldn't fit it all in we even really forgot about warging and everything like <laughs> yeah. that that's all still to come
0: yeah anything to add to that lady gwen no really yeah <laughs> we all kind of just agree yes there would be a lot more magic in the books yes. Yes. <laughs> They really uh, it's it's odd that they tapered it off. They really did make it more about politics. You know, it seems like magic would be a fun thing to do more on screen. But yeah, they just uh, they just didn't go that route. They really focused on the dragon. Dragons are cool. Uh, Prakash asks, my question is, what next? I heard there were possibly as many as three spinoffs in the works. It's actually five, but some of those have been canceled. I guess three is what is the current number, I suppose. And but more could be added still. The question continues. What three spinoffs do you think those would be? And as for huh. the books, will George R. Martin give us an ending similar to what we saw Sunday night, or will we go on a completely different tangent? Bellar, reread us. Yeah. Um, well, let's unpack that. A couple of different questions there. I don't think, um, I, yeah, the, the other spinoffs. Well, we have the Long Night prequel, which is the one that's actually begun filming. Uh, there's a shot. We tweeted a shot of uh, a screenshot of the uh, set, a part of the set uh, earlier today. And uh, there's a lot of optimism there. I'm very optimistic for that. Um, a lot of positive uh, news rumors coming out of that. Nothing too substantial, but it seems pretty cool. Uh, about as far as the other two spinoffs, I've forgotten what we've taught. That's been brought up in the past. Either of y'all remember what the rumors were on that? I know there was maybe a Dance of the Dragons. was quite a was lot swirling
2: around. In.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. they were kind of mum. There's some details leak, but... Nothing. Nothing too concrete. George even said that some of there's single we lines. We know it's not Robert's Rebellion or Duncan Egg. Yeah, uh, Ashaya says we know it's not Robert's Rebellion or Duncan Egg. That's that's off the table for now. Um, mm. But basically everything else is on the table. <laughs> prequel show about Valyria. Prequel show about uh, you know different mm. houses. Anything. There's so many different possibly Blackfire rebellions. There's so many possibilities. But uh, mm-hmm. unfortunately we don't have too many ideas we do uh, george even the way george said it that there are some single lines in some of history books that they had a whole show could be written about and if that's <laughs> the case then we really the the, the options are vast <laughs> from valyrian echoes morning from down under will george r. r martin play up danny as a tragic hero as opposed to an infamous one Anissa, this a sacrifice for john love your work thank you for that and uh happy to hear from down under uh yeah, I think a tragic hero, yeah. M- far more tragic than a villain. Yeah, I don't think I think she'll the villain part will be more in my mind applied to how people see her within the story. Uh the truth will be a lot more complicated. And on the other hand, you know, if if there's if she does have some sort of hereditary madness like her father did where it slowly happens, well that's a totally different thing. Um and that would be that would still be tragic though. If she was this really good, awesome character that frees slaves and does lots of great things and then you know, hereditary issues have her losing her sanity. But if George is making a statement about hereditary monarchy being evil, then having a hereditary disease uh, be in play is kind of an interesting statement on one of the flaws of that system, but I'm not sure if that's what he had in mind. What do you guys think? Tragic hero or becoming infamous? Lady Gwen, you first this time.
1: Uh, Danny? Yeah. Danny, Danny Um, I think is going to be an infamous uh, but it's going to be tragic it's kind of both yeah uh, it's interesting <laughs> because george's you know not a blog post was yes and no yes and no <laughs> yes and no you know so I, that's kind of my answer to this yes yes i no. Yeah. um she's for both she's tragic tragic
0: infamy <laughs> <laughs> tragic infamy right on joe what do you think <laughs> yeah i've
2: written quite a bit about uh Daenerys and this just kind of we said about her narrative it's just it depends which way you want to look at it really uh George is obviously going to give us a lot more of a window via her POV so it probably will uh come off as a lot more tragic to us as readers it already does it to me as a viewer anyway but in world uh, like you say the majority I think will probably uh remember her is not good especially in Westeros Mm. in Essos uh, her legend will grow she'll be the, the great liberator she'll stay the mother of dragons but I'm sure they'll think up some cruel nickname for her in Westeros for what she did to King's Landing and that'll probably be the same thing that happens in the books I would guess
0: hmm right on okay from Radiance Bucknor, very good name there. The books say dragons may be even smarter than humans. Why the surprise? that Drogon understood that the throne killed Danny. Well, Lady Gwyn, you had a very good theory on this. I we talked about this a bit on on, on Monday. I don't need to give a different answer, but I like your thoughts here.
1: Yeah, my, my, this is my perspective. That you saw that scene before when John right before he walked in and Drogon was hidden under the snow and uh, just looked at John and went back to sleep. I think he didn't see John as a threat, and it wasn't because. Uh, he was Targaryen because I would remind you about Rha- <laughs> Rhaenyra. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> dragons definitely will kill Targaryens, but I think it's because of his bond with Danny. Think more like would Silverwing have suddenly have roasted uh, Paris for something? Yeah, somebody, good you know? point. Probably yeah. not. It's because the the writers are bonded together, so that creates this sort of thing. Remember that scene when the two dragons were watching John and Danny.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: you know, when they were out on their little romantic picnic. Um, and in so, The Dance of
0: the Dragons, we have examples of, of, of opposing factions their dragons snapping at each other. And right. when in the past, when they weren't on opposing factions, the dragons didn't care about it. Yeah,
1: they'd be sort of, mm-hmm. yeah. So I, I think that's why. So I think when Drogon came in, obviously he senses Danny's death, he comes in, and what she got sticking out of her chest, uh, this bit of iron, which is the same stuff that's in the iron throne. So I think that symbolically symbolized to him, the thing that killed her was literally that thing sitting right next to her. It had the baby. same
0: smell, right? It was, yeah, I like, it smelled, yeah. you know, that's evil.
1: Uh, you know, you get an interesting perspective of that from warging, which, so there's something that's kind of misses missing from the show is smell. You get the, the wolves, the way they interpret things like, um, swords and armor and stuff like that and by with lots of senses other than vision and so yeah i think that symbolically drogon did perceive that the object that had killed her was the throne and that you know it was more metaphorical that it was the throne that drove her to her destruction i mean that was more for our for our perception so
0: right on yeah. Okay. Uh, let's take a quick mid-roll break and come back with more questions. You all have given us a lot of good questions, which some many of which cover topics we already had listed. So it's kind of killing two birds with one stone. Uh, I want to give a shout out to our Blood Rider patron. Speaking of Blood Riders, earlier, if if Shay and I were killed, I imagine these folk would not just hand wave it. They'd come and get revenge for us. We uh our blood riders are better than Danny's. <laughs> Her show ones anyway. The book ones we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> Vorsaki, wielder of a Valyrian steel arak uh, with the dragonbone hilt, Koakoi, called Sunpiercer, wielder of a dragonbone bow, and Kokavo the Tamer, wielder of the wildfire whip Gehenna. And a shout out to our Ironborn captains, who are an excellent group of folks as well. Black Matto Stormrider, Captain of the Rusted Hinge, Sir Selvis Redblade of White Harbor, Captain of the Trident of the North, Lord Chucklaws, Captain of the Dromond Nightblood, Destroyer of Evil. John Gregor is captain of the Fist of the Drowned God. Sir Kiron of Lonely Light is Scourge of the Sunset Sea, Captain of Naga's Breath, a Dromond armed with siphons of wildfire. Aileen is Archer Queen, captain of the Border Collie. Crimson Cade is Captain of the Drowned Queen's Vengeance. Jasana the Just is Collector of Tolls, Captain of the Golden Gift, Lord Mitch of House Bailey is captain of Widow's Blood. His heir is Lordling Mason of House Bailey. And Beneath the Gold is a podcast focusing on lesser known, A Song of Ice and Fire characters. Check them out. All right. That's uh, that's all we have for the mid-roll. We can get right back to it. Just had to take care of those excellent shout-outs. Back to the questions. Romina Akemi asks, Daenerys' decision to burn the Tarlys appears as a turning point away from mercy and toward fear. However, I found her decision to execute Masador, a former slave, deeply disturbing. Thoughts? Yeah, I do think that was a turning point, And the, the way you framed it is, is excellent because that is a huge dichotomy that I want to get into in general and especially with Bran and and just the way we began this episode we talked about uh, that dichotomy. Um and yes, Massador, that's it. we maybe should have made more of that scene at the time. We all thought wow, that was she made this mistake. It seemed kind of clear at the time that it was a mistake, but she wanted to you know, be consistent with her sense of justice. So, I don't know, yeah, that was a tough one. Um Joe, what did you think about uh Masador versus the Tarleys here and Danny's turning point?
2: Yeah, I think they show almost kind of forgot about and It didn't really, apart from, obviously, the Sons of the Harpy getting angrier. It didn't They didn't really focus on it. The Tarlies, which already seems like so long ago, um, you'd have to remember that's kind of like her first impression on Westeros, really. she already burnt the baggage train, but people in Westeros can... Uh, they're used to stuff like that happening in the name of war, but after the battle of people surrendering... Uh, A long old family. Um, That was definitely, yeah, a bad first impression, and it's come full circle to haunt her now because you know we've seen the stuff of Sam already this season, and just you know that plus your burning uh, innocence—it all adds up. And not again, it goes back to those uh, Aegon the Conqueror lessons that Daenerys hasn't learned.
0: Yeah. And I think just to add to that, too, there's there's even more fear with being burned to death and the standard just have your head cut off or, or yeah. go to the block, even though we know that dragon fire is so hot that it might be just as unpainful. But it again, it's the whole perception versus reality thing mm-hmm. that uh, it, it we're really seeing how that could happen in the books. There's so many examples of what Daenerys's intent could be versus how it could be seen. And, you know, the rumor mill going to town with all that. So, yeah, really a uh, very good question there. From Little Angry Irishman, Quaith's prophecy referring to the Starks. Much love. All right, much love back to you, Little Angry Irishman. Well, probably not, but maybe it's it's interesting. Quaith's prophecies are one of those things that we'll have to just take another look at and and reconsider everything we've just learned and see if anything is different. Honestly, I haven't had time to do that yet. Any uh, any thoughts on Quaith? Um, I think it's still Daenerys-oriented, you know, talking about what's coming to her and all that, but... Again, like I said, I'll have to, we'll have to re- maybe reconsider. Lady Gwen. any any thoughts?
1: No, I mean, I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about it. I mean, I personally I think Quaith's prophecy is pretty much nailed on, except for one or two things. I mean, it, it seems obvious in light of what we know is coming to her, but there's always red herrings. So, And there's other parts
0: <laughs> of the theory, or the parts of the prophecy that maybe we're not focused on. We're, we're talking about a lot of people coming to her, but that's not the only yeah. thing Quaith talks about. Right. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Take, it's it's worth another look for sure. Joe, did you have oh, any yeah. thoughts on that? Or are you kind of in the same light? Like we need to look again?
2: Yeah, I, I would definitely need to look again. Yeah.
0: <laughs> you don't have Quaites prophecies memorized? Come on, man.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> From Chris Trombley, do you think Dark Sister will be given to Arya by Bran in the books instead of the dagger? Mm, yeah, maybe not by Bran, but probably. But I don't think it will be to kill Night King because we don't think there's a Night King in in the sh- in the books, but. I do think Arya ends up a dark sister. It's it's a good, the the the, just the name of the blade really fits her, doesn't it? What do you think, Lady Gwen?
1: Yes, I'm very excited about this, as you know. (laughs) Yeah, right after episode three, (laughs) (laughs) she's she's the dark sister. So, oh yeah, yeah. Mm
2: -hmm. would you agree,
0: Joe?
2: Yeah, I think um, if I'm right, even the description of the blade itself would be uh, something could end up using so i think it's very telegraphed yeah.
0: right on i, I believe Shea tends to agree as well if not fully agrees so four out of four are a big yes on that thumbs up on aria getting dark sister Tracy McMillan, we'll catch this tomorrow. It's late, North of the Wall. Just want to say thanks for all the show coverage over the years. Much love. Well, thank you very much, Lady Airadros, who is from Scotland. So yes, she is indeed from north. the land of North, north of, the of the Wall. wall. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Thank you very much, Tracy from Vince Fergalley. Hey, A and A, just want to thank you for the knowledge you and your colleagues have shared over the years. Can't wait to see you where see where you go from here. We can't either because we're so excited hmm. to to reprocess the entire series given what we've just learned. So. You know, I feel for people who hated the ending. I really do. But there's so much for us to think about now. And that is awesome. That's really fun. The fact that we have so many new book considerations to have. So I, uh, I choose to stay positive. And thank you, Vince, for also staying positive. Alec D E K. I really appreciate y'all's positivity. <laughs> right on <laughs> right on time. It is great to have such prominent members of the community contribute to such excellent analyses to the future. Well thank you, Alec. And I also want to say, you know, all this praise, some of this praise needs to go to y'all as well. Joe and uh Lady Gwyn, especially Lady Gwen, because you've been around with us for years covering the show. So you yeah. deserve just as much thanks. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, from Ben Barkley, from my favorite, The Song of Ice and Fire channel. Thanks. Well, thank you, Ben. And from Tina Carney, no question. Thank you, Tina. From Paul Atreide. Great stream, guys. Happy Wednesday from Tallahassee. Yeah, another Tallahassee <laughs> <laughs> shout out. always <laughs> love those. My hometown. Fred Targaryen's Uncle Daddy with his usual random denomination number. Uh, super chat. Thank you very much for that, Fred. Uh, how about a moment of silence for the great Khaleesi, the bomb diggiest character in the series? We could do that. Let's have a quick moment for Danny. The bomb diggiest character in the series. <laughs> well, she certainly wields the bombs. If dragons are uh, an, uh, a parallel for nuclear arsenal, she is the uh, the bomber <laughs> of the series. The, the one who drives the big uh, B-57. <laughs> uh, although I guess she'll have some, uh, not co-pilots, but um, there'll, there'll be some other people flying the bombers as well in, in the books, I'm sure. Katie O'Brien says, never been able to watch live before, but I'm homesick from work today. Thanks for the much-needed therapy sessions all season. Love from Australia. Oh, another one from Down Under. Well, <laughs> thank you very much, Katie. Sorry you're sick, but hey, silver lining is this, right? From Scott Wartman, Bloody Ben Blackwood. Great coverage this season. Excited for new book material. Shout out to Yoke Boy since you can't be there. And of course, Shay is the best from the History of Westeros Mods. Again, yes, shout out to the History of Westeros Mods. That's uh, Jennifer Scott Rebea. Uh, Tommy, uh, Ari, and um, Laura. Thanks to you, to all y'all, and um, we really appreciate all the work you do at our Facebook group. And indeed, a share is the best. Randolph Sparks, what do you make of George R. Martin's recent blog posts? Of course, we got this question. Yes, I'm glad someone asked. Well, I, I have take the. I have very long held the attitude of I don't care what he says. I'm not raising any expectations until it's done. And I got to admit, this one moved me a little bit because he's just so adamant about getting done before next Worldcon. But uh, still, I'm just going to just keep on paddling. And when it comes, it comes. Do you, what about you guys? Did this, this, are you, are you uh, getting excited or are you trying to just keep level? Lady Gwen, you first.
1: I, I did cheer. I mean, <laughs> you know. I, I cheered at the dinner table, and uh, somebody might have rolled their eyes at me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose. <laughs> well over
1: a year away, so.
0: You
1: know? <laughs> but uh, but no, I mean it just. I guess it's just nice to see because for all these very many years, we haven't seen any sort of this much positivity or or concreteness, right? So yeah, you know, it just. Uh, I don't care if it comes out in two months or in well in a year and two months. I just want, I am excited that he's feeling positive about it. That's yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: I'm with that. What about you, Joe? Yeah. I'm
2: much the same. Just glad to see, um, see him excited. And also he, you know, he explained how big of a thing the show was for him. And that's obviously true. It's really good for him to be able to say that and, uh, I think it just motivates him that this so gets him going. When, whenever it might come, I'm definitely not raising expectations but just him being uh, invested in it again is all I'm really asking for.
0: Right on. Okay. Alright, let's move on to Tyrion and Jon having their discussion that leads to the big stabbing. You'd say, Lady Gwyn, that uh, Tyrion really goes through all the issues with Daenerys and uh tries to sell him on that. But at first John is is just kind of a stonewall like he was with mm-hmm. Danny on the issue of Sansa and the secret spilling. It's kind of the same sort of stubborn naivete, isn't it?
1: Yeah. No, oh, yeah, it really is. I mean Tyrion's really just basically he's got a long laundry list of of and it's it's escalating, right? All the yeah. things that she's done. It's escalating and maybe they getting a little bit more gray every Every time, um, but you know, maybe less easy to justify. But John just is is right on board. Um, it's kind of it was interesting because a lot of what Tyrion was saying is it was echoing things that we talked about um, last last week. You know, or e- either on the review, but just even as fans talking about. Danny, over the course of the week in between the two episodes, especially like Tyrion's commentary on the comparisons to Tywin and Cersei, because we did mm. talk about that last week. And, yeah. Um, he said, yeah, they did bad things, but none mm. of them even kind of hold a candle to this. So it's <laughs> <laughs> pretty bad. Yeah. Um, his, he had this certainty in spite of it all. Tyr, Tyrion talked about his certainty that Danny was good and right, which uh, gave me this very strong Stannis feeling, something we talked about earlier. You know, there's, there's something that is going to take a little more analysis to, to get the comparison correct. But, you know, there's this constant characterization of Stannis as a righteous man, and he has a righteous cause. If you look for the word righteous in A Search of Ice of Fire, it's... Um, always about stannis so i found that quite interesting um then moved on to the maester aemon thing which uh we've talked quite a bit about uh maester aemon comparisons already right but he the, you know this oh, yeah. son invokes that love is the death of duty uh Tyrion turned it right back around on him duty is the death of love uh both of which were true in this case Uh, I found this was interesting because if we're talking about love, I was reminded about Lyanna saying love is sweet, but it cannot change a man's or woman's nature. So Mm. um, yeah, Then, then we're moving into the shields that guard the realms men and, the sisters part, which we've talked about that, you and know, that this, parallels, this, this yeah. Is the, yeah, this is really what seals it for John, right? Is that that parallel with Ned? Uh, remember, he's already got this kind of in his head because Sansa, uh, Arya had mentioned it as well. So now you have that um, that parallel to Ned sacrificing his honor to save Sansa. And I have this quote from Maester Aemon in Game of Thrones asking John. Uh, tell me, John, if the day should ever come when your Lord Father must needs choose between honor on the one hand and those he loves on the other, what would he do? And John's answer at the time was do whatever was right, no matter what. And in the end, the dilemma for Ned came down to what was right. What, you know, to, you had to choose what was the right thing. And that's exactly what it comes down to for John. Uh, that's what the language of this scene with Tyrion is all about. You have to make that choice. What, which is the right path to take. Uh, and so you see that, you know, fear versus love mm. coming down, coming, you know, really drilling
0: down on John and Danny finally. Definitely. Well, yeah. And uh, Joe, you had uh, a couple of good thoughts here written down as well.
2: Yeah, I think you can quite plainly see that John is – he doesn't know exactly what Tyrion is saying. He knows what Daenerys is up to, but he's he's in denial or bargaining stage, just very similar to Varys to Tyrion in episode four, where, um you know, he gives reasons, 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 all of which are true. And John keeps kind of coming up with the same answers, but they're getting a little bit weaker each time. He can't really deny it any longer. And I think you can just see that as this discussion goes on and it turns to you know, Tyrion's quite obvious suggestion that they're really discussing taking the brunt for everyone and doing this horrible thing, adding this weight that's never ever gonna be lifted for from them, which is kind of John's whole arc about, you know, having to do the the heavy lifting and having that duty on. It's there for Tyrion as well, but it's a little bit thinner. And it really just kind of takes you back to Jamie and what he did for the greater good and what he had to put up with afterwards
0: yeah true that true that okay so then we move on to the actual confrontation between john and danny at first you can kind of see john's kind of work trying to work himself up to do this awful thing or 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 to make sure that it's justified so the first thing he does is he brings up the the slaughtered soldiers who had surrendered and then he brings up children and joe Mm -hmm. you had some thoughts on this
2: yeah earlier in the episode where he goes past gray worm um just ex he's become an executioner now more than a soldier and it took me back to the old Ned lesson of uh, he who passes the sentence should swing the sword. I don't know if John would specifically apply this to a, a woman, but he's definitely not keen on what's going on here of this just um, outright one rule fits all type thing yeah if he, you were on that if you're on that side, you're dead
0: yeah that's mm. he hates that and he's also he's also mad. That Danny doesn't even know it's happening. She doesn't even. Mm. It's not just that she's not doing it herself. It's that he he says, "Have you even been down there? There's kids dead." He doesn't even know this is happening, and mm-hmm. that makes him just as mad as anything else. So, Lady Gwen, you 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 caught a, a you have a nice reference here as well.
1: Yeah, it was interesting because this is in the very first chapter of Game of Thrones, which of course is Bran. So we've got this theme coming up in Bran's very first chapter, where Bran they're they're seeing this deserter executed by Ned. And Bran is a little confused. And he says to his father, King Robert has a headsman. And Ned says he does, as did the Targaryen kings before him. Yet our way is the older way. The blood of the first men still flows in the veins of the Starks. And we hold to the belief that the man who passes the sentence should swing the sword. And, you know, it's not Necessarily, like Joe said, that maybe we're going to expect Danny to swing the sword. Although why, why not? But it, at least own it. At least be aware. You mm. know, pass the sentence, right? Yeah. Um, and and she wasn't really doing either of those things. But then you know, so this is bothering John. It, it's it's bound to bother him. But then it very quickly becomes about the children, doesn't it? And that is that is such a huge part of Ned's arc. Everything yeah. is about. Saving and protecting children, even his kind of final conflict. So, um, yeah, you had this great quote. This
0: really, yeah, this quote it. just yeah. hit, hit me, knocked me to my knees when I found it. It was like, man, this is really what exactly what John. We talk about these parallels between John and Ned, and this is just, I guess it's foreshadowing. I don't know what you want to call it, but it is. It's powerful. Here it is. Yet last night he had dreamt of Rhaegar's children. Lord Tywin had laid the bodies beneath the Iron Throne, wrapped in the crimson cloaks of his house guard. That was clever of him. The blood did not show so badly against the red cloth. The little princess had been barefoot, still dressed in her bedgown, And the boy, the boy. Ned could not let that happen again. The realm could not withstand a second Mad King. Another dance of blood and vengeance. He must find some way to save the children. Ooh. Mm-hmm. yeah. And that's really early in A Game of Thrones. And think of the way he says it, another dance of blood and vengeance. And when mm-hmm. Daenerys is is asked by Piat, not Piat Pre, but Quaro, uh, not Quaro, uh, Zaro Daxis who says, don't go to Westeros. You know, let's go sail around the Jade Sea and listen to poets and do all this fun stuff and sail in pleasure barges and and, and drink from the cup of Blankety Blank. And and Danny says, I want to drink from the skull of the usurper to toast a to vengeance, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, right <laughs> okay, <laughs> and so that's that reminds me here. that's that's this whole thing that's the part of, of, of Daenerys's quest mm-hmm. that is the the toxic part, the the vengeance part of it is is not right. is not good.
1: The interesting thing about this this quote is that um, it, you know he must find some way to save the children, and he's thinking about very much what's on his mind is Robert's wish to have Danny assassinated. (laughs) So Ned is going to give, you know, give up his, (laughs) his life, his position to save Danny and her son, her unborn child. Um, He
0: passes the buck to his, to John.
1: (laughs) There's this huge irony, but at the same time, he's, he's got very much in his mind, John and how he's, you know, sacrificed so much to protect John from, from uh, Robert's rage, you know, from this sort of, you know, being in that same position. He was one of Rhaegar's children after all. So there's this whole circular, just amazing when you start really trying to pick that passage apart. Yeah. So, that, yeah, That's great.
0: This is one of the ones that sent the wheels spinning even faster. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Joe, you had some great thoughts here that, that relate to this scene uh, to just before John comes back in and, and her visions and stuff.
2: Yeah. So we've we've seen uh, Daenerys in the frame room once before back in her, Uh, vision all the way back in season two Um, I'm sure most people remember that she she goes to touch the throne but doesn't and then goes off to see Drogon but the point is she goes on living I think the point is that this time she does touch it as in she is throwing herself fully into that's what she's after she's after power power now because there isn't much left for her and that leads to her immediate downfall I know because I don't think we actually even get that vision in the book so that's quite quite different but perhaps those visions that she did see in the house of undying are just things that need to pass for her survival maybe
0: hmm, right on okay let's talk about the actual moment of death here and the azora high prophecy uh certainly a lot of people want us to talk about that um well lady gwen you want to start
1: well i just we start with this quote from you know uh the prophecy from the Davos chapter where we get the actual story as High thrust the smoking sword through her living heart. Uh, it wasn't exactly a sword in the show, but he certainly thrust it dagger through her heart. Yeah. And you know, the imagery is there, of course.
0: Yeah, it is, but there's some problems, aren't there? I mean, for example, Daenerys is the one who checks off the boxes of high better than anybody, better than Jon. She's the one who woke dragons from stone after all. So how is she, Nissa Nissa, that's a little confusing, isn't it? I'm not exactly sure what to make of that. And
1: mm.
0: you know, what's funny is, is uh, as a small aside here, Game of Thrones season is super fun for us. It gives us a lot to think about. It keeps me up late at night, early in the morning, a lot of times thinking and, and getting ready for this. And sometimes I write very silly notes. And here's an example, cause I'm looking at what I wrote here and I wrote, no one ever told us Nissa Nissa was a Nazi. It does have SS in there twice. What what did I what am I talking about? Then I wrote they may have gotten things crossed up with Indiana Jones here because the Iron Throne belongs in a museum. I really don't know what I was writing there. Then it says Nyssa backwards is assin and John is an ass asin. What <laughs> yeah, I wrote that, so I don't know I don't yeah, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for the distraction, but that was just... I don't know what the hell I was doing. I was who wrote that. Yeah, I wrote that at probably 6 in the morning or something. I was probably up all night. I get pretty silly when I'm tired. Uh, so. That's the,
1: uh, the <laughs> consequence of the brain just spinning until it's smoking.
0: Yeah, exactly. Just talk about a smoking sword. <laughs> Emphasis on the smoking, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> 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 and uh, so... You brought up another point here, though, Lady Gwynn. This isn't there's there's a taboo that kind of snuck past us here. I didn't even think of this. And it's a huge deal.
1: Yeah, there's a, you know, John now is a kinslayer. Um, uh, and I was when we get near nearer to the end, there's a big, big parallel between John and uh, a story from someone north of the wall. And the end of the story is says, you know, the gods hate kinslayers. And I thought, Jesus, don't, you know. John's a kinslayer and that is not going to escape him because it's a huge taboo in the North. It's a great big part of their culture. So, um, you know, this is why he's, he's not going to ever choose any sort of power. If, if it plays out that he is the one that has to do this, uh, it is going to be, you know, the ultimate tragedy because he's going to have to walk away from everything because of, you know, Sort of who he is. Um, he killed one little
0: lady. <laughs> <laughs> he kills
1: one little lady. It's just one little lady. <laughs> one, I mean, think of a tailspin that Rob Stark went into when he killed Rickard Karstark. Oh, because
2: yeah, the Karstarks
1: so. haven't been related to the Starks for like centuries and centuries. Yeah, they're, they diverged so far ago that you know they're they're just like the only tangentially are they related. And so imagine John has to kill his own aunt, you know, what sure. that will do to his sort of his psyche. And it just.
0: Uh... its its That Rob example is fantastic. Because if you remember what Karstark says, he says, kill me then and be cursed. Right. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, it's kind of
1: what happened. He kind of was cursed. <laughs> and, well, he was. And so, I mean, this is it. That just shows how huge that is in their culture. The North is, you know, they have things like kinslaying and, and guest right loom much larger in first men northern culture than they do kind of in the south so yeah so yeah it's just something to, to think about and keep an eye on how how that's going to play out for him
0: speaking of smoking shout out to weed detective on twitter who points out that ned refuses to assassinate danny but john has to which we mentioned but what we didn't mention is that john gave someone else a for the watch moment after having it done to himself he did it to somebody else Ooh, yeah
2: mm.
0: those are some feels joe you have some thoughts here
2: yeah, similar to on those lines, it's, it really struck me that John finally kind of went underhanded to to do the, to the deed. He lies to her, tricks her. I don't think, you know, he gave her as many opportunities as he could. He really tried to bargain. It was kind of tragic seeing him beg her not to go down the route that she was, but uh, it was a no-go. Um, so he gave up his honor for the realm by, you know, tricking, kissing her, and then kind of underhandedly killing her. And then even after that, when she goes down, it was <laughs> I got very emotional because we didn't even get to hear any final words. She just kind of looks and almost says something and then that's it. And it really, really hit me like a brick.
0: Yeah. And then, of course, the Drogon's reaction is just tear jerky, isn't it?
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah, nudging her—that really yeah. got me as well.
0: That was that. That's vague. That's reminiscent of Silverwing nudging uh, Vermithor's wings uh, after the dance of the draft the second battle of Tumbleton and the dance of the dragons. It just took me right back to there. It's like, damn it! How do you make dragons be so sad? How does mm-hmm. he do that? How do they do that? Yeah, and it's uh, so there's there's a bit of irony with the the throne itself being unmade, isn't there, Lady Gwen?
1: Yeah, I, I forged by Valerian. Uh, made by Drogon, yeah. two you know black dragons. People, people say ending. Drogon is
0: Balerion come again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There you go. I've got uh, this. The next section is called Hour of the Worm, which is funny because. We got a super chat from B-Word who says, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the Hour of the Wolf equals the Hour of the Worm. Yep. Well, of course I caught that pun. <laughs> thank you for your dedication. We're very lucky, fandom, to have all of you. Well, thank you for being a part of it. We really appreciate the support and the great questions. Let's see here. Um, yeah. So it was kind of like we, we kind of guessed at how this might play out. Hour of the Wolf, Hour of the Lion, I thought maybe it would be. And it kind of was sort of Hour of the Lion. Tyrion sort of took charge even though he was in chains. But Grey Worm had the energy of position there he had the uh you know the spears at john's throat which which gave him a lot of leverage for negotiating and uh well that was pretty significant wasn't it there's um this great council that we came around well got a couple of quotes here that uh take us to the idea of this great council happening it's mentioned in the books um and it gives us a few ideas as to how this could work out here uh i'm gonna read the first one and then we'll have uh John was not entirely innocent of the history of the realm. His own Maester had seen to that. This that was the year of the great council, he said. The lords passed over Prince Arian's infant son and Prince Daron's daughter, and gave the crown to Egon. So the quote continues Go ahead, Lady Gwyn.
1: Yes and no. First they offered it quietly to Amon, and quietly he refused. The gods meant for him to serve, not to rule, he told them. He had sworn a vow and would not break it, though the high septon himself offered to absolve him. Well, no sane man wanted any blood of Arion's on the throne, and Daron's girl was a lackwit besides being female, so they had no choice but to turn to Amon's younger brother, Aegon the fifth of his name. Aegon the unlikely they called him, born the fourth son of a fourth son. Amon knew, and rightly, that if he remained at court, those who disliked his brother's rule would seek to use him. So he came to the wall and here he has remained while his brother and his brother's son and his son each reigned and died in turn (coughs) until Jamie Lannister put an end to the line of the dragon Kings.
0: Oh yeah. And then we get a quote from Catelyn. That's even more important. I think
2: Rob will set aside his crown. If you and your brother do the same, she said, hoping it was true. She would make it true. If she must Rob would listen to her, even if his Lords would not. Let the three of you call for a great council, such as the realm has not seen for a hundred years. We will send to Winterfell so Bran may t- tell his tale, and all men may know the Lannisters for the true usurpers. Let the assembled lords of the Seven Kingdoms choose who, sh- who shall rule them. Renly laughed. Tell him, my lady, do direwolves vote on who should lead the pack?
0: <laughs> so that laughter about Renly there, that's, that's those lords laughing at during the Great Council at the idea of democracy. Uh, which I thought was a pretty nice touch because it would not be reasonable for these lords to accept democracy <laughs> uh, as much as that would have been a, a cool, feel-good ending. It would not have been exactly realistic. Uh, so some sort of moving towards that. If you could call elective monarchy a move towards democracy, then, well, that's at least something. But mm-hmm. you can see this is pretty cool. There is another quote about the Grand Council, but it's really long, but it relates to... Aemon talking about killing the boy. He says, I'll just read part of it here. He was only three and 30 when the great council chose him to mount the iron throne, a man grown with sons of his own, yet in some ways, still a boy egg had an innocence to him, a sweetness. We all loved. kill the boy within you. So I think that's interesting that, uh, we have all these mentions of the great council around some of these same characters. We have parallels to elsewhere, Aemon egg. And of course, uh, these other characters like brand being mentioned about telling his tale. Of course the, the, the context here is Bran talking about Jamie and, and uh, Cersei being caught in the tower. But that has context for Bran as well, because we were talking about that. Bran climbing high, uh, you know, metaphorically speaking, only to be tossed down by the Kingslayer. <laughs> uh, only to rise again and become king in the end, which is pretty ironic. Especially considering in back in 1993, when George was still outlining the series his original plan for the series was for for jamie to murder his way to the throne he expect that was the original plan so that irony would have been even deeper think about that if the original plan was for jamie the kingslayer to murder his way to the throne well think about the irony of him almost murdering bran only for bran to become king that's pretty cool it's still it's still pretty ironic but the original 1993 outline it was even more ironic (laughs) Let's see y'all's thoughts on this. Uh, John and Tyrion, kind of a familiar place there, huh? The Black Cells.
1: (laughs) Tyrion has been in in the Black Cells uh, now, kind of awaiting death more than once. Um, But it's not and it's not just the Black Cells, actually. I mean, if you think about Tyrion's arc, he spends a lot of time kind of... uh, whether it's the black cells a couple of times, or just locked up somewhere,
0: yeah, um, in the Vale or Slavers it, Bay, or yeah,
1: <laughs> exactly in News prison channel. in the Vale. Even after the Blackwater, he's kind of like locked up in his own room. They move him out of the Tower of the Hand, and he's like, uh, you know, when he's a slave, when he's kind in Illyrio's house, he's kind of just, you know, being held there, waiting. Uh, he spends a lot of time just locked in a little room, waiting for something bad to happen. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> so we don't know who called the great council we have some notes on this but i think we're going to skip past it mostly because we're, run, mm. we're running a little short on time but it's going to be interesting to see who, who does it in the books um could mm-hmm. be Tyrion. could be gray worm it could be mm-hmm. a, a council of you know they agree to that this is what's necessary um there isn't a really powerful hand figure like blood raven to do it that's what is missing that wouldn't necessarily fit here unless mm. i'm not thinking of somebody I, I can't no one seems comes to mind anyway but We'll see. Uh, so let's talk about King Bran. Um, let's spend the last uh, the, the rest of the episode on that because it's obviously a huge, huge topic. And we've gathered some evidence for foreshadowing that exists in the books. And of course, there needs to be a lot more um, digging. Asha noticed that Bran the Broken is a name he gives to himself in his own mind, not unlike calling the Three-Eyed Crow the Three-Eyed Crow. It's just a name they had to give him because he didn't have an, uh, a name. So... He uh, <clears throat> thinks of himself that way, and it really—it's painful, of course, to think of himself that way. So it was a little awkward for him <laughs> to just declare Brand the Broken. Like, wait, can we can we have a more friendly nickname? A little <laughs> Brand the, the All Seeing, or Brand the Wise, or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why is it Brand the Broken? But of course, this does remind us of Aegon the the Broken King, um, mm-hmm. and Lady Gwen. What do you think about that parallel?
1: Well, it's just, you know, the first visceral parallel is, you know, Aegon the Third lived through a vicious war involving dragons uh during the course uh well, actually it wasn't during the course of this war it, in terms of Bran, but you know, his mother was brutally murdered. Uh so, you know, it's a something that led to him being quite solemn and broken. So um yeah.
0: Definitely, and he was forced yeah. to split apart from his brother, like like uh, mm-hmm. like Rickon, uh, yeah. where uh, Rickon slash Viserys, uh, Aegon the Third did. Okay, this could argue maybe for Bran to skin change a dragon, um, maybe not. I mean, we already have his other arguments for that. Uh, then we have the secret siege of Aegon the Third, trapped in the Red Keep or in Magor's Holdfast versus Bran in the cave, surrounded by whites, um, while mm-hmm. he's down there dreaming on his weirwood throne. Their their pets, Summer versus Stormcloud. We have Sandok the Shadow versus Cold Hands, uh, who you know defends them, helps them get into the cave there. And of course, the Sandok the Shadow episode definitely has some White Walker vibes with all these guys in white uh, being led by a white Walker, um, a King's guard. We have a Warwith Throne versus the Iron Throne. Now of course, we did a lot of comparing Egg on the third to John, and now I still obviously those parallels aren't gone. They're still there, but it looks like the better parallel might be Bran. But there's also parallels to Aegon the Unlikely, as we talked about. He's been mentioned quite a lot in this episode. Uh, Aemon's younger brother, who was chosen by the Great Council. And of course, we've mentioned that Bloodraven's Great Council puts Egg on the Iron Throne, and mm. Bloodraven puts Bran on the Weirwood Throne. Ah, so that is pretty incredible. Uh, and then, Shay, I put a note here that John is, as since we were talking him as a parallel to Maester Aemon, well, that's kind of like... Uh, being Egg's brother, which would be, oh, again, Eamon. <laughs> so that's as well. Um, and in the beginning, again, this first chapter, I was really poring over Bran's first chapter, which is the first chapter minus the prologue. And there's another line that really jumped out to me about John and him setting himself aside to make things work. And in the very scene where Bran is crying about the direwolves to are going to die, well... John is the one who steps forward and points out the sigil and the gods parallel that there's three male direwolves and two. And Bran thinks to himself, he never loved John more than in that moment. The count had come right only because John had omitted himself. And that just sounds to me like John removing himself from the line of succession. John taking, you know, doing the, the brave thing to, for other people. You know, it's a very small version of that. What do you guys think about the general idea of Westeros, the lords of Westeros accepting him in the books? Is that is this is this a far-fetched thing or is it something that we could we could see develop and maybe George could make it make sense over time? Uh just you know, if it were to happen in the first chapter of the next book, that would be kinda <laughs> like the show rushing it, but <laughs> but if you know, given lots of time, hmm, maybe. Joe, what do you think?
2: There's uh, certainly a lot of uh ground to cover before I think that I'd become anywhere near uh, possible there's kind of two avenues you can go down either he comes down and really shows off uh, all his powers and that somehow convinces them but on the flip side that could just freak them out and yeah, and make them want him to be king less or it goes down that he um, he goes back down to the Winterfell and kind of unites the north again maybe that's the culmination of the north storyline is that bran eventually comes out of the wilderness and leads there and then everything that happened might be happening with daenerys and destroying king's landing and all the dragons maybe he's the solution to that and they welcome a, a northerner instead of having all these uh, seveners messing up all the time
0: yeah and you mentioned mm-hmm. the tyrian speech is sort of a uh you call it an inversion of virus's riddle that's neat
2: yeah yeah, I thought that uh, straight away. The riddle about where does power come from, and Tyrion asks the the council what binds us together, and he suggests armies, which would be the man of the sword. In Varys' riddle, riddle, he uh, gold would be the merchant. He says sigils or flags, which should obviously be the lord. Um, and no, he says it was is stories so of Bran, which would lend at least a little credence to what the to what the night king was trying to destroy but yeah I, I just thought that was um that was Tyrion taking that riddle that's bothered him so long in the books and really coming up with a answer about that uh you know knowledge is power type thing
0: all right that's a good take yeah for sure well let me list off a few things from this first chapter that i've been excited to talk about and then we'll get uh some thoughts from lady Gwen she can respond to this so in the first chapter, which is not only the first chapter, it's the first scene George imagined, which is Garrett's execution and the discovery of the direwolves. So Bran's first chapter is all about fear at the beginning, which is a, a interesting thing to consider given Danny's fear versus love uh, dichotomy that comes up a lot and with other characters in the past like Tywin and, and Ned. Of course, it's like I said, it's a theme in general throughout the books, but it, it's right there in that first chapter and I never really noticed it. Rob says Garrett died well, and John says he was already dead from fear. You could see it in his eyes. Bran had already fixated on Garrett's eyes before hearing that, and he saw it too. And then Ned caps it all off with what may be the first of many uber-quotable A Song of Ice and Fire lines, where Bran asks, can a man still be brave if he's afraid? And Ned says that is the only time a man can be brave. And there's even little bits, like when Bran is looking, John rides up next to him and says... Don't turn, you know, don't be afraid. You know, don't turn your eyes away. Uh, Father will know. So he's, you know, making sure Bran is brave just to facing the execution. But the second half of the chapter, well, it begins with the theme of fear, ends with love because they find the direwolf pups. And it's a theme of mercy because Hullen even says it will be a mercy to kill them. And that's, Mm -hmm. boy, that's an ethical conundrum, isn't it? A mercy to kill something is kind of like, you really got to be sure about that, don't you? And Bran is just horrified by this, and Ned is, you know, well, it, no, it will be, it will be bad. We can't, you know, you don't want to, teach, you don't want to bring these direwolves around. But they talk him into it, uh, partly because of John and his words about the, them being a sign from the gods. And it just struck me that this is a, such a seminal, important part of the whole series, and I never really noticed it was so big part of this first chapter, this fear versus love dichotomy. Mm. Uh, I, I have more, but I'll let lady gwen i want to get your take on this first part and and see what it's what it says to you
1: yeah um i think this is you know it's a huge um it's really the the primary uh political conflict uh set, if you set aside the magic and the whatever you know the prophecies and everything this is the primary political conflict in the series is you know the ideas of fear versus love, and like you said, we see it so much with Tywin. Tywin versus Ned, and the things that they taught their children. Uh, we talked a lot in our Tywin episode about their their styles of fatherhood. Uh, so you see it playing out in their children, uh, which is why you know we, we had that discussion about Tyrion earlier. But you know they're they are all sort of le- living the lessons that they learned as children from their fathers. So uh, where Danny fits in, I guess, is that um, her father fell very much along those same lines as a as a, as a former ally of Tywin. And um, I guess it's no surprise to see it playing out in her arc as well.
0: Yeah, very true. Okay, so here's a few other things. Um, we have that that nice little series of chapters where Bran is Prince of Winterfell, and he's actually ruling in Robb's stead. It's very interesting in this new light, especially considering this fear-love theme, because Bran, when he's ruling Winterfell, he specifically thinks about how he wants to show love for his people and how they'd love him back. And Lady Gwyn, you caught a little parallel to another Stark there, didn't you?
1: Yes. she uh, Sansa thinks at the Blackwater, she's observing Cersei, who is it's this very much this theme? She's observing Cersei being in creating fear in people, and she thinks if I'm ever a queen, I'll make them love me. <laughs> <Right> <laughs> Which on. is why many of us are not that surprised to see Sansa being a queen.
0: Yeah, uh, definitely. <laughs>
1: as, as an aside,
0: <laughs> another thing that Sansa, show Sansa reminds us of that's that's different in the books is that show Sansa looks pretty much like Book Sansa. That's a, so Sophie is a very good match for Book Sansa. But Isaac does not look like Book Brand. And that's important almost never, except right here it is a little important because the fact that he looks like a Tully is important. We were talking about Joe talking about maybe who he is is going to freak people out. Well, it would help a little bit if he looks like a Southerner instead of a Northerner. He looks like a Tully. And the fact that he has mixed North-South heritage... That could be a plus in a great council setting, the fact that he comes from both cultures. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then a lot of people have asked if about Bloodraven maybe manipulating Bran, or and I've talked about the conflict between them. Well, here's an interesting little quote uh, that y'all might want to consider. I wrote here that his mentor Bloodraven is a master of whispers and hand who many claim was effectively the power on the throne for Ares and for part of Makar's reign. Uh, Makar, not he was, he was hand for all of Makar's reign, but, you know, he would have, Makar was a stronger ruler than Ares. The quote, the quote continues here, uh, is that a or not a quote rather, but my point continues here that a raven on the shoulder of different Kings is kind of how people see him. He's like the, the proverbial devil on one shoulder, the angel on the other. So he's seen as a raven. And that's more ominous because like I said, Bran's thoughts on how to lead are very different from blood ravens and blood ravens quite ruthless. So here's a quote that, that kind of speaks to that. Lightning flashed and thunder rumbled, and dead men with black hands and bright blue eyes shuffled round a cleft in the hillside, but could not enter. That's, of course, a reference to the secret siege I was talking about before. The quote continues. Under the hill, the broken boy sat upon a weirwood throne, listening to whispers in the dark as ravens walked up and down his arms. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, that's a big one. Uh, so, <clears throat> a couple other points here. Uh, that... Um, well, as far as brand quotes, there's a, a couple other ones that we don't really have time for, but I am I'm, I'm excited to share with the, these with you guys later. Uh Lady, go ahead. Let me get more of your takes here on uh, some of these other things, uh with the Bloodraven stuff and also the um the brand's look. Anything else mm-hmm. you want to say?
1: Yeah, I think I think those are good points and I think um you know, Bloodraven is arguably could be viewed in the light of a kingmaker. Uh, he played such an important role in Daron the Second and Aries the First reign, and, and in bringing uh, Aegon the Unlikely to the throne. So I, I think, you know, in terms of the relationship he's having with Bran, if he's having dreams, green seeing, you know, if he knows what the destiny is, um, arguably he's still kind of playing that role there. I think that quote. Especially where it's placed, the one that you just read about the, the secret siege, um, brings us to a very good point, which has kind of been what I've been thinking a lot about. Brands arc, book arc, hasn't progressed a lot yet. So we have a lot of this kind of low-key, low-level stuff Right. Yeah. Um, but there isn't a lot of the more overt stuff like we see with Sansa and and a lot of the other characters and in the sort of foreshadowing of the way Danny's arc is going to go because he's still stuck in that tree. It just and if you think about it uh, a few years ago before um, before the show actually showed us him coming out of the tree there were a lot of fans that thought brand was never going to leave the tree yeah so Mm -hmm. you know and but that's it's not you know saying all those people were wrong It's, it's indicative of the fact that his arc hasn't really picked up steam yet he's got a lot of ground to cover um the fact that he hasn't really made a lot of progress yet is why we haven't covered him. Uh, (laughs) He's one of the more central characters in a way, but we are expecting that in the winds of winter, he's going to be so central that we've kind of been waiting. And well, we didn't think we'd be waiting this long, you know, like everyone else. But anyways, (laughs) um, that's, that has been my perspective with thinking about why, you know, the brand thing kind of took a lot of people by surprise. And it's just because, we simply didn't see it coming in the books and the show as we've been discussing has rushed so many things that, um, they didn't set it up, you know, the way they might've done.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, let's take the last bit of questions and then call it a night. There's a, uh, we're not going to have much time for, unfortunately for Brienne and the white book. We don't have much time for Bron and Gendry and the small council. These are small topics that we'll cover later. We, we've covered Aria as, uh elissa farman in a specific live stream already and there's a little (laughs) bit more evidence for that but it was really nice to see that sort of semi-confirmed um i'm guessing the show didn't just make that up on their own they probably got that from george so uh that's more to say on that later perhaps but definitely just check out our sun chaser episode if you haven't seen that there's uh, that's where the bulk of it's going to be as for queen sansa yeah it's interesting this will be this is kind of the, the inverse of Brandon in some ways and how she he if he if he becomes king it's like he embraces his northernness only to kind of become a southerner uh if he becomes king of everybody whereas sansa goes to the south and becomes a southerner and learns how to be a politician to come back to fully embrace the north which hasn't happened in the books yet but it seems like she's on that track would you agree lady Gwynn? um uh, yeah and joe sure. what do you think yeah
2: yeah, absolutely. I think just looking at that council quickly, you can see how many, uh, how much influence she's got on so many different people. She's really come into her uh, final form as a, a player rather than a pawn.
0: Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And 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 Sansa's learning all that politicking. That southern style politi- politicking is uh, pretty valuable because the North isn't quite like that. They're a little bit, uh, you know, well. They don't uh, They don't have courts and, and things like that up there. It's a little different. A little different ball game. The Game of Thrones plays out differently up there. Uh, okay, so questions from William Coupland. There's a lot of rebuilding to be done in the north, clearly, who would be there left to take over castles overrun by Night King on the way to Winterfell? Well, let's not consider exactly which castles are gone in the show because in the books it'll probably be a little more uh, fleshed out. Uh, Yeah, that's going to be a massive job ahead for Sansa, Queen of the North, if that's how it ends. Depopulating, uh, or the the fact that the North will be so heavily depopulated, probably worse than what happened in the show. Probably the entire North gets overwhelmed. Uh, Mm -hmm. The the foreshadowing seems to show that others being defeated at the Trident, or at least Danny fighting them at the Trident. And I kind of doubt that if they get all the way to the Trident, that there's people just doing well still in the North. (laughs) They're probably quite doomed at that point. So I feel like it's going to be a lot more empty, which might be part of why they need to be independent because they really need to take care of themselves. Um, that might be part of the impetus. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's uh, going to be a huge deal. I, I personally think like white Harbor is going to be wiped out, which is just, geez, like it's a whole city. So King's landing might get wiped out also. And it's going to be bloody and bad folks. When's the winter is going to be nasty. <laughs> mm-hmm. Chris Trombley says thoughts on a book fallout of the slaver's Bay of slaver's Bay. Should Danny be killed in Westeros? Will her followers in Essos leave the cities in the slaver's rooms? Well, that's a bit of bit of aftermath I hadn't considered. Yeah, I guess maybe if the the liberator dragon queen is killed, they won't be worried about her coming back. And yeah, that could be major political upheaval, which could just make John's decision uh, if it's him doing it even harder. Uh, although maybe he may not, may not think about it and then just be afterwards. He's like, Oh, great. So I killed her, and all these cities are back to slavery. Yikes! Mm. Yeah, that's a mm. that's a dark but accurate thought to have here. Any thoughts on that, y'all?
1: Mm. Yeah, uh, it is. It's disturbing. I mean, you see it in kind of uh, Brit Small and Astapor. So um, mm. you yeah. know, she left Astapor, and they, you know, they, they didn't take long to um, go back to Oof. their old ways. So yeah. I think once she leaves all that, it's, it's probably not going to stay the way she wants it. Yeah.
2: I have quite a a funny image in my head of them hearing that Daenerys has died and throwing a party and enslaving everyone again. And then Drogon just goes over, over the sky and they think, Oh God, no,
0: (laughs) we shouldn't have done that.
2: (laughs) We won't. We promise. We promise we're being good. We were
1: definitely not (laughs) 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 high-fiving.
0: We were mourning. I swear we were mourning. Um, yeah, speaking of Drogon, we, we we have a minute for that. The idea that he flew, obviously, the not not the grabbing of Daenerys part, but the maybe flying back to Valyria or flying back to the Dothraki Sea where he was born. Uh, that, what do you, you guys mm. have any thoughts on that? Do you think that's probably where he went?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, the Dothraki Sea would kind of be more in keeping with because that's where he came from and you yeah. know that's where the the whole thing with valeria and going back to valeria yeah. so uh but i mean he could also fly to valeria i'd love to
0: were y'all surprised mm-hmm. that he survived oh he was
1: uh yeah i kind i just kept thinking Arya was gonna me too yeah. so, uh, even me, when yeah. he was um you know he was kind of winding up to where you weren't sure he was going to burn John and John wasn't sure he wasn't going to burn him. And I thought, okay, now Arya is going to show up. That's
0: what I said. I said, here comes the bow shot to the eye. (laughs) So uh, a a commenter mentioned that I I was wrong. Uh, I said that there's not that it's a Chekhov's bow. She never uses it, but she did actually use it. She shot a a white that was chasing Sandor in the battle. And I was like, oh yeah, she did do that. Yeah, (laughs) But was that really what it was all for? I guess so. (laughs) Oh, well. Um, yeah, I'm, it's cool that Drogon survived and it makes me question, you know, same thing. Does he survive in the books? Does he fly off at the end? Well, we get that, like you said, it parallels, uh, the Aurea episode in Fire and Blood and Jaehaerys, they, they spend some time like, well, we got to figure out what happened to Balerion. Where'd he go? So it's kind of a little aftermathy thing for Bran to be thinking about. Uh, Bran's a little more equipped to figure that out than Jaehaerys probably.
1: I'll find him, he said.
0: I'll find him, yeah. <laughs> Dot location.
1: <laughs> Just put on Find My Dragon.
0: Yeah. A <laughs> homing signal shows him over Valyria <laughs> moving quickly. From Danelle Peoples. Any plans on a video slash discussion tying George R. Martin saying all the foreshadowing for the endgame is in the first book to what we got in season eight? Uh, yeah, sort of. Maybe not specifically that, but given that we're rereading and re-looking at all the foreshadowing, there's no doubt that we're going to pull a lot of that. Uh, we've already... Just in this episode here, this live stream where we've really only had about 72 hours to prepare for it, we pulled a lot and you know there's mm-hmm. going to be more. Uh, this is just what we have. I, just, I mean, I was just looking, Search of Ice and Fire, looking at brand chapters, just going, looking for words like crown, throne, rule, lead, you know, yeah. uh, just things like that. And um, But there's so much more. You can't, you, you can find details that way, but you can't find themes that way necessarily. Well, sometimes you can, but. Uh, anyway, m- certainly more research is, is very much in play now. From Pablo Avastegui, uh, I'm sure I said that wrong. Apologize. What's going to happen in religion or to religion in Westeros? I mean, the king is also the chairman of the old gods. Yeah, well, I, I think that's a great question. And we've yeah. talked about how in the books, it seems likely that Daenerys will have a lot of lore worshippers with her when she comes over, considering they see her as the savior, literal savior of the world. So I think they're going to be following her and we've also got the faith being you know reempowered and and you know at this point in the books the faith are still a thing the the high sparrow is very powerful at this moment so religious conflicts going to be a big thing in the books it isn't present in the show i think uh mm-hmm. what do y'all think joe you go first
2: yeah well in show the seven should be in total disarray from um, from what cersei did to the sept anyway so they would already be on on weak footing so if we get anything I don't think we're going to get exactly that in the books, but if we get something similar, then yeah, they're already going to be quite vulnerable. And then R'hllor comes in and then if Bran comes down and the old gods come back or with John, Yeah. It's going to be a big old uh, melting pot.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I just think this is one of the things that's problematic about, uh, <laughs> you know, Bran being the chairman of the old gods. Yeah. I like that. uh, but that's what, what would be most problematic for him more than, more than anything um with the southern the southern lords because the faith has had such a huge role in determining who gets to sit on the
0: iron yeah. throne they even, really really hated the targaryens at first too
1: yeah they did but you know, so even aegon really had to the conqueror had to kind of you know t- handled them with kid gloves and yeah. obviously they had a huge role in the first several generations of targaryen rule yeah so i i just i don't know how that gets resolved i was just like just it comes down to there's a lot of ground to cover yeah uh, before we can see a first man old gods worshiper slash representative sitting on the throne in the south
0: yeah i think joe may have touched on what might be the solution which is if they if there is a big religious conflict then it results in some sort of religious war. You may see the, the faith of the seven really decline in power and not have a lot of say in this yeah. grand council setting. That's one possible mm-hmm. way for it to go. Um, other than that, though, it is a conundrum for sure. Um, the Northern, the, the Southerners would, yeah, the idea of uh, anyone who follows the faith of the seven uh, supporting a, a king who is empowered by the old gods definitely seems like a stretch, but George is clever. <laughs> we shall see. <laughs> yes. From Mad Doc One Six Three. Actually, before I read that question, you, you talked about Aegon uh, and treating the Faith with kid gloves, and then of course, Megor and Visenya treating them with uh, the iron glove, uh, sort of so to speak. And I wonder how that'll. Uh, I wonder which uh, version. Um, Daenerys will go with uh, mm-hmm. if it's anything like what we saw on the show she will be more like Maegor toward the, towards the faith it may be part of it and Like if we're, yeah. if we're thinking really thinking about how Daenerys' descent should be spread out rather than just happening in like one episode uh, the kind of harshness she showed to the Tarleys might be something that we see slowly play out more lords kind of not you know executed yeah. instead of shown mercy to maybe the same with followers of the faith she does things like that to them Yeah. I mean, you got to think that some of that Magor, the cruel stuff, fighting the faith, that's coming back. That might be a parallel to what we're about to see in some form or another. And if it's not Cersei going after them, which it could be, uh, Daenerys, very, very well could be her. Uh, Mod Mary 1 says Bran falls under the law of exceptionalism. Well, he's not a Targaryen, but it is at least, there is at least a precedent for exceptional beings uh, written into law, like taking account for that. So yeah it's a it's a not a direct comparison, but it is at least uh, some kind of precedent for being above humanity giving you uh, an edge, you know uh, might have to reread that law of exceptionalism to see if the, the wording is tricky at all. maybe George threw a hint in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so yeah, Mad Doc 1632's question is, do you think the White Walker plot has a lot more to do it in the books? Dear God, I hope so. Kind of off topic. sorry, I don't catch you live very often. keep up the great work. I don't think that's off topic. I think, and I think, yes, I think there'll be a lot more to the White Walker plot. I think a lot more. Uh, do y'all agree? I see some yes. nodding. I'm like, they're like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, they're yes. like, hmm definitely.
1: Yes, it will take more than one night. <laughs>
0: yeah, that was not resolved. a long night, y'all. That was a <laughs> short night. That was
1: really a short <laughs> night. I mean, it probably felt long to them, but it was really, like, not.
0: <laughs> not a single person froze to death. I mean, come on. (laughs) We want people to freeze to death.
1: (laughs) No mothers smothered their babies rather than see them starve. Yeah. Where's the mother
0: smothering babies? We demand. (laughs) (laughs) No kings died in their halls. I don't know. We're so inconsistent. We're like, Danny shouldn't kill the children. But here we are calling for
1: (laughs) starving,
0: freezing children to happen. (laughs) Like, yes, give us that. Hypothetical children. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're hypothetical children. <laughs> uh, from Jill Wright, John took a knee to Brand. Is John no longer of the North? And then Jessica Brandwine wants us to consider John, his, his, the way he looks back at the gate closing and takes note that there are no other Night's Watch in that group. It almost seems like he was going off to be with the Wildlings rather than to be with the Night's Watch. I see Lady Gwynn nodding emphatically. Hell yes.
1: <laughs> Hell yes. Uh it can, this is um you know the thing I was talking about before, there's a huge parallel to John. John that extends throughout his arc with Bael the Bard, King Beyond the Wall, and of course we have to, have to throw in the lovely wildling Val, who never mm-hmm. really seemed to have a huge purpose. I mean she did and she didn't, but it was hard to resolve it with what we thought John's arc was and now maybe ha huh, maybe. Yeah, this maybe is this reason, is his,
0: his end game. <laughs> maybe
1: that's the reason for Val's existence yeah. uh, to be there at the end of all things for John. So
0: <laughs> how nice everyone to have a nice, uh, have a, a, an attractive young woman waiting for you at the end of everything.
1: <laughs> maybe that's the sweet <laughs> and the bitter.
0: I don't know. Uh, Just-
1: Trying to be positive.
0: <laughs> yeah, but it is kind of funny Jill, considering Jill's question that he knelt to Bran. It's funny that if he goes off to be a wildling, he just knelt to the king. Like you're not supposed to kneel if you're going to go off to be a free nailer right? <laughs> yes, but uh, you know, but John was, you know, he had to make you know make his obeisance. <laughs> he had mm-hmm. to show that he's you know not going to steal his brother's throne. His- his nephew's throne, whatever. <laughs> cousin. Yeah. It's his cousin.
1: Yeah. Cousin. yeah. <laughs> no, in all seriousness, that that scene, that him leaving King's Landing, was very much of this sort of like king choosing exile. I got a yeah. huge vibe of that. And so, you know, then he was, yeah, kneeling to Bran as if he's, it's kind of like passing the, you know, I'm leaving. It's all
2: yours.
0: <laughs> I'm out, bro. I mean, cousin. Cousin. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for, Joe, anything to add to that?
2: I think you're yeah, dead on. He's definitely off of the wildings now. He's free of all these heavy restraints he's had to carry for years. That look back at the gate was very definite goodbye to Westeros and all the terrible things that happened to him at Winterfell and King's Landing and what he's just had to do to Daenerys. That's all gone. He's put the ultimate barrier between it, and now he's gets to go off and be wild, like he said to torment he wanted to do. And he's with Ghost. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah, which, of course, petting Ghost was like... Thank you, God. I know,
2: and he's got his proper hair back. Goodness, right? Exactly.
0: (laughs) And did y'all
1: see the little, the little um. Green, green grass, property, the dream of, green spring. Spring. dream of spring.
0: Nice touch so, by, give him credit for that good. nice touch for sure. Do
1: you have to give him credit for that?
0: That was good. Um, and you know, yeah. there's a really funny Twitter account called, Why Did john Snow Smile? And it's just, a, <laughs> it, it shows a shot of john Snow smiling, and then it describes why he smiled. And of course, there's not a lot of these because john Snow <laughs> does not smile very often. Very rare. Yeah. But I wonder what that Twitter account thinks of john smiling at the closing gate. I think that. That's his last smile, and uh, it's a meaningful one. And I wonder what their take is. So if you're out there, whoever runs the Why Did John Snow Smile account, just know that we want to know what your take is on this, too. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, From B-Word, what happens to Bran's powers when he dies? Does he pass them along to the next Chosen King or the next, you know, three-eyed raven character Mm -hmm. type? Well, that's a real tough one because what's going to happen to the Weirwood Network if the, the White Walkers are wiped out? or the threat of the others is defeated. Does that impact the Werewood network at all is the children probably aren't going to die out in the show, like the books. So yeah. woo, that's tough, but it's a question that needs to be answered that they may not, even the book may not answer it though.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's implied that Bran is, you know, part, just one of a, a long chain of this, you know, green seer kind of network. He you know, he's, he's taking over. Um, so, Yeah, and the way you know we talked about this a couple weeks ago, the way they kind of end is just to almost like they're just absorbed into the network, into the trees. Um, So yeah, I don't know what happens to all that.
0: Is he just sit there just constantly on the lookout for an air, just like scanning everyone, like that guy over there, that guy over there, that girl over there? It's kind
1: of like um, it's kind of like uh, Tibetan Buddhism. Where you have the Dalai oh, Lama, yeah. and, then, and then they, when the old Dalai Lama dies, they find the new one. Yeah. Who's a, babe, a baby who was born. It's my Recent, understanding. Yeah, like right they after. It it, yeah, just, yeah they, so they just kind of, it's like a never ending chain of life because they believe in reincarnation. I don't know. Maybe that's Brand's cool. just out looking out, looking for his. Whoever it's gonna be,
0: he needs he that needs. thing that uh, what in the X Men, the Professor X has, where he gets him, <clears> the, <throat> the mind thing and he can find all the other mutants out there. <laughs> That's right. The brand needs; he needs to find the other green seers out there. Uh, find
1: my, find my green seers. <laughs> yeah, findmyair.com.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the fearless mermaid says, "Thank you all." Well, thank you, fearless mermaid. Cere brand maybe. What's that? Cerebran. Cera- <laughs> they called it cerebran yes yes we all need some brand washing yeah <laughs> that's good cerebran yeah cerebro is the name of that device i couldn't think of that that's perfect also from moralee just a show of love and support well thank you very much Moralee. we appreciate it and that is uh also a good way to uh end this episode with a show of love and support well we Love all of you. The show is over, but as you know, given the hurried pace of this episode where we tried to fit in, a bunch of endgame thoughts packed in to while reconsidering everything we know about the entire damn series. Uh, so clearly <laughs> we have more to say on this. We'll be having both Joe and Lady Gwen back for live streams in the future. As you know, we'll have live streams, uh, as I said, Tuesday and Saturday once a month each. And we'll certainly be bringing them back along with other excellent guests from around the fandom to give their takes. Cause we're not the only ones who have our heads spinning right now. Everybody's heads are spinning. A lot of these, anyone who's diving deep on this is uh, going all, it's like going down the rabbit hole all over again. <laughs> uh, so I've said it before. I'll really, really say it again. It's seriously Valar reread his time, you all serious, serious, seriously. So we're, let's all have fun with that together. Mm-hmm. And I will, be letting you all know how exactly we're going to be doing that it takes a little consideration. Don't want to just uh, drop a plan without um, giving it some some thought and making sure it's going to work out. We don't want to have to change it midway. So give that proper consideration. So look forward to that, y'all. Can't wait to get back into that and uh, and the prequel show when that comes around. There's so much more for us to do. Okay, so let's say uh, adios for now. Let's let uh, people want to know when they'll see you next. When they'll see us next. Yeah. The next live stream, we'll probably won't uh, go live again this month. It's the 22nd. We'll probably take a little time off and then we'll get right back to it. The first Tuesday or Saturday, either the first Tuesday or Saturday of of, um, June will be be
1: Tuesday.
0: We have guests in town Saturday. Okay, so the first most likely the first Tuesday of, of June, we will announce it as soon as possible and uh I'll announce the topic as well we have got to figure out what we're gonna do as far as that wait where to start so many things to start with <laughs> uh so uh, again uh joe tell everybody where to find you and um yeah we'll also yeah, a you... reminder to everybody that joe's can, joe's work will also be in our scripted episodes blackwood episode is probably one of, of the first course. ones we'll do so
2: yeah, yeah. you can find me on Twitter, uh, Berkeley. You can find all you need to know there about the podcast, I Faces and the Castles book that's coming up. Um, I just wanted to say that I've had a real blast covering the season. They have done a lot of work, not really slept, but uh, coming on <laughs> here, Dream Come View, talking to you and Achea and Lady Gwynn, really... Tom Notch couldn't ask for anything more. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, oh, You're welcome. Thanks for coming. You were great. You added a lot of thoughts that we would have missed and uh, just your your sense of humor and everything as well is very welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Got to have a British guy on here, you know.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's the law. <laughs> it's, the
0: law. <laughs> it's the law. And Lady Gwen, <laughs> so tell everybody, remind everybody where to find y'all and maybe drop a few hints about what's coming up postseason mm-hmm. for y'all other than um, our Continued dance of the dragons collaboration, which we also yeah. have to rethink. The parts of
1: <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. So, uh, so yes, indeed, we have that. We'll be putting, you know, putting some thought into that. Uh, find us at RadioWesteros.com. Find us uh, on iTunes or on YouTube. Uh, skip on over to our YouTube channel and give us a like or a sub over there. Uh, we're on Spotify. Uh, we also have a Patreon. We've got some exciting new stuff in the works for when uh, Yopoi Boy is uh, rejoining us soon. He's been on a brief hiatus, but he'll be back hopefully before too very long now, and we'll be announcing some new things. In the meantime, we have a... New episode coming out uh, within a matter of days, possibly Whoa. as soon as tomorrow for our uh, for our patron rolling release, and then uh, later, sort of mid or late next week uh, for a public release. What is it? All about uh, all about Lyanna Stark. It's called oh. the Wolf Maid. It's got some really great contributions um, it's from some uh, talented members of the fandom. Uh, We also are going to be featuring a new episode, a new episode, a new essay all about Sandra Clegane, uh, contributed to us by our old friend, Milady of York from the Ponta Player project at Westeros.org. So that'll be featured on our website or on my website, actually, and linked on the Radio Westeros website very soon. So if you're interested in more book content, get on over there because uh there's there's still so much to be <laughs> so yeah. much to be dug up oh, in yeah. these books and with <laughs> new books coming gosh we've got our work cut out for
0: well us. when george puts 10 meanings into every sentence it just geez
1: that <laughs> makes it, it it gives us it makes our job uh much more fun yeah
0: you also know, endless. I wouldn't
1: say hard. It just makes it complicated and fun.
0: Yeah, it's the good kind of hard. You know, you have to yeah. think a lot about it. It's not easy, but it is the It's the difficulty is fun. It's a fun challenge. Right. Uh, and to just for reference, if anyone's curious, if anyone's wondering, if you've ever sent a super chat, we do share our super chat revenue with our guests. But also, I highly recommend subscribing to Radio Westros' patrons. You can get their episodes early and their bonuses because Lady Gwen uh, contributed a lot here. And um, if you haven't checked them out by now, well, there's no better time than now uh, because, well, they have a lot to say. (laughs) Their catalog is deep and rich. Yes, it is. (laughs) Right on. A lot there. Y'all do. Y'all do. It's true. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, again, thank you to everybody who has attended all of our uh, Book to Show live streams over the years. There'll be more of them to come under uh, different auspices, but basic, same basic energy, same enthusiasm and r- level of research and attitude and all that. Uh, so the future is bright, folks. Thanks to Ashea for monitoring everything, the chat and all of the technology and everything, wearing so many hats at once. Thank you to Michael Klarfeld for the video intro and outro. Thank you to Jesse Kowal slash Joey Townsend for the music, both versions uh, that are used on the podcast, as well as all of our sponsors and patrons. Time to read the uh, Patreon credits. I believe I had to skip them last week, so it's uh, definitely time to get that back in here. The Mysterious BR is Hand of the King. The Smiling Wolf, Lord Stephen Stark of the Broken Tower, is uh, titles, 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 <laughs> and of Queen Ashea, who is known as the best. Uh, he, he he wanted us to say it that way from now on. <laughs> I like it. It's very much, uh, very meta, very appropriate. Lord Jim the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog is Warden of the West. Lord George Stormsville the Cunning, Lord of the Chiliad, is Warden of the East. Cabeth the Unfrozen is Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Defender of the Old Gods and Warden of the North. Lady Kelly McMath of Covington is Lady of the Villa Hills and Crescent Springs, Warden of the South. Lord James... Tuttle is king of the Stepstones and Narrow Sea, commander of the Royal Fleet, consisting of the Narrow Fleet led by flagship Caraxes and the Bloodstone Fleet led by flagship Prince Damon. His fleets were untouched by Daenerys' uh, wrecking of the Iron Fleet. He knew to stay away from dragons. Some people are smarter than l- no magic Euron. <laughs> High magic Euron might be a totally different ballgame. We'll see. King Beyond the Wall, Sidney Jesse, is the Fallborn, Lord of Blue Spring and the Haunted Forest, wields a dagger of Dragonglass and the Valyrian Steel Blade, Red Frost. Our small council includes Lord Daniel the Sneaky Russian, Master of Ships, Grandmaster of Via James. Lord Benjamin of House Hornwood is Master of Laws. Lord Fabian Flowers, the Bastard of Greenshield, is Master of Coin, not Master of Groin. Lord Johan of House Orkos is called Shadowhawk, Master of Whisperers. Lady Dairlys of Castle Naki is the Alpha Patron. Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bell is Breaker of the Second Stone. Gregor the Toasty is Lord of the Breadfort. Lord Ryan of Castle Stonegate is Guardian of the Rocky Mountain Pass. Ashlyn Winter is the Hawke's Eye, Lady of Castle Skyfall. Lord, uh, Lady Mikkel of Moonacre is Leader of the Werewood Protectorate Alliance. <laughs> The Lord of the Halls of Castle Hillcrest is wielder of the Valyrian steel machete Everglazed. Lord Alistair Whittaker is lord of the Dawnhold. Lord Bemi Snugglebunny is guardian ranger of the hidden hundred-acre Weirwood, dual wielder of the Valyrian short-swords Glorious Morning and Little Lightwise, sharpshooter of the Iron Weirwood and Ironwood lamented longbow Todd Von Oben. When you fear things cannot get worse, Snugglebunny enters the fray. The Bastard of the Wolf's Wood is first forester of the Old Gods, sworn to house Iron Weirwood. Listen for the silence. Lady Leanna Kelly of Wolf Island is Protectress of the Steelhold. Casey Stark of House Acres. Lady Kay of House Archer is Lady of Earth Dog Hall, Huntress of the Wolfswood, and Guardian of Maddie Squirrel's Bane, the Mighty Direweenie. Lady Raywin of House Dilsdane is the Star Spear. Peter Rivers, the Pale Dragon, and heir to Bloodraven. Sir Matthew of the House Begonius. Our King's Justice is Sir Troy the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade, Fate. Our Queen's High Council is. Includes Bloody Ben Blackwood, Master of Whispers, Rebae Stares, Lady of Waves and Mistress of Ships, Captain of the Iron Shadow Cat; In the shadows we bear our claws. Catrin the Wise of House Trondheim is Master of Coin. Grand Maester M. Elizabeth, Middle Daughter of Lyanna Mormont, is First Lady to forge both the Silver and Valyrian steel links. Laura Boros is the Lady of Infinity, Master of Laws. Our Kingsguard is led by Lord Commander Miriam. Uh, Sir Dollars D is Longest Tenured White Sword. Willa Crowsbane, Guardian of White Tree, is First Lady of the Free Folk. Sir Dean the White is Knight of the Black Star. Sir Jord of House Pepsi is the Beverage Knight. Gregor Snow called Snowbear is a Bastard of Winterfell. Sir Glennon of House Leanne is called Lioncloak. Our Queen's Guard is led by Lord Captain Commander Hama Helminth, the Sellsword Sentinel. Alexander of House Atreides from the Seat of Dune. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Becca the Bard is Songbird of the North. Michonne the Melodious, the Star of Old Town. Minds over Masters. Sir Rambo, Knight of House Gannon. First Blood. Sir Leon of House Walker, wielder of the Twin Valyrian Steel Blades, Fire and Ice, and the werewood Bow. Rain. Amber the Adamant is the Knight of the Mists and Mother of Squids. Our Beard Guard includes Lord Commander George the Golden, Sir Joshua Oakhart the White Oak, Lady Rita of the Copperman, the Unbound, Dance the Fervor. Lord uh, Sir Jeff Warden of the AC is wielder of triad, the multifaceted beard of platinum, red and brown. Stay frosty. Sir Tim Corgyle is mad boy of the western desert. And Queen Helena von Landstein is partying like it's 1999, since 1980-something. A kingdom for a drink. And last but certainly not least, rounding out the shoutouts, is our History of Westeros Night's Watch, a.k.a. the Night's How-Watch. Lord Commander Benjen Umber is the silent giant, wielder of the Valyrian steel greatsword Winter's Kiss. First Builder Magor Snow, a.k.a. Magor the Cool, is the fire in the snow. First Steward Sir Durian of the Torrentine is called Pale Wind. And First Ranger Sir Source Sor- Sor- Delica is of House Gramercy. Also want to give a shout out to our book, The Thrones Effect, which Asha and I contributed to Chapter 2. If you want to do some more reading about the extended world of Game of Thrones, how it's impacted society, how it's impacted people, very meta stuff, really. Uh, naming of kids and pets and all that sort of fun stuff. We go into a lot of uh, excellent detail, if I do say so myself. And <laughs> so do our other co-authors. So check that out. It's a, There's a link available on our website. And I believe there's a link in the episode description as well. And that's it, everybody. So thank you again to everyone for making our show coverage so excellent and wonderful and fun, most of all. And hopefully... Uh, Thought provoking, and of course, if you do think so, well, stick with us. We got a lot more to come. And I say this more emphatically than I've ever said it. Valar, reread us. <laughs>